0: This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking,
1: who attacked our country? You have declared a criminal. She against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motive. The night fell on a different world. And if is thinking, you know... I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people that have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting in a position on him will never let the true fact come about more to the, to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind.
0: And uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? these people are in very high position, Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 176. I'm your co host, Dimitri.
2: I'm Khaled.
0: And today, we are continuing our journey through the misty lands of Ottoman Palestine. Yes, I think today this is the start of part three, and uh, for us is going to be part four.
2: Yeah, in it, one
0: long, uh, one long sesh. But uh,
2: yes, this yes, yeah. this it. is our second like block of recording. On this topic, and yeah, I think that we will, uh, Palestine will still be in Ottoman domain for the course of this episode. I doubt we're going to get to the end of World War One as we were just discussing. But uh, yeah, yeah, really,
0: one of my am- <laughs> ambitious titles in the outline. Was yeah, it was World yeah. War I? No, yeah, I'm 1933
2: not... was a date that was thrown out, which definitely is not going to be. Oh reached. yeah, 1933. Um, <laughs> yeah, I sort of did that to, uh, to be
0: edgy, but well, uh, more for <laughs> a later part, but. Yeah no, today we still are in the late nineteenth uh, century. Um, I yeah, think we we left off, we bounced around a little bit, but I think we yeah. sort of left off in the sort of maybe eighteen seventies, uh, early eighteen eighties period, where you know a number of significant things uh, start to occur in the in the grand narrative. Um, but we are still very much, lest we forget, you know, rooted in the Ottoman era. Um, yes which is uh, the era, you know, basically in which the region of Palestine existed for over four centuries. 400 years, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, about 400 years. Yeah. So um,
2: it really is, like, an obscured topic, which is why I think, you know, it's worth lingering on and worth, like, delving into deeply, because the history of ottoman palestine especially during this period is so as you said like kind of like a misty land in uh especially anglophone historiography because everything is so focused on yeah like uh, things that we definitely will touch on in these episodes like by necessity like the emergence of the zionist movement and zionist immigration uh or immigration Mm -hmm. jewish immigration to palestine under zionist auspices um but Uh, There really is like a whole history there. And there was definitely an ideological project, I think as we'll also discuss in this episode, to kind of uh, hollow out or erase that history and make Palestine into barren terrain uh, that was just open for a state to, to exist, especially in later decades in the 20th century that was kind of retroactively projected. But in fact, there's obviously, as we already talked about, like a ton of history there. And the fact of ottoman suzerainty in, in palestine was like the key concern for the same people who would then try to kind of er- or you know the very sort of interest that would then kind of like try to erase its very existence later on it was yeah you know, the big.
0: the copious amount of evidence of like the political games being played with the ottoman government is sort of like evidence that there was uh, something there you know it wasn't yeah. just um, maybe a few bands of Bed of Bedouins, you know, roaming the uh, dusty ruins of the Old Testament. Actually, this kind of illustrates something. Um, I don't think I had told you this, but you know, I was just in uh, New York over the mm-hmm. holidays. Yeah. Uh, as was heartiness. I, but we didn't
2: overlap. I like left one day before you just got there. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: But uh, but just as I had done uh, when we had met up, uh, I think. Before the last time we had met up before Sj, you know, existed. Mm. I think we went to the Met right? yeah, when
2: we were conceiving of Sj. The day that we yes. came up with the name of of Sj, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll have you know that there are even more wings named after Ronald Lauder uh, mm-hmm. now in there. I think there's a whole knight and like armor. Like oh yeah weapons, the, uh, right 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 the yeah the arms and armor is
2: old but i don't know if they rechristened it you know with a new name but yeah uh they've had that yeah i
0: long. bet he and epstein loved like dressing up in that knight armor and <laughs> like you know ugh, uh playing most dangerous game uh on the island but anyways there was there was like a small exhibit in there that was basically an early photography exhibit it was just a tiny room and it, it was uh funny enough about early photography i forget the name i'd have to go look up exactly the name of the the person that did this but basically somebody had gone to the holy land and egypt i think in like the 1850s this is kind of very early almost daguerreotype era but Mm -hmm. they took a lot of early photographs of many different you know ruins and holy sites and monuments around uh, basically, you know, the area of Egypt and Palestine. So, of course, you know, they got the Giza pyramids and everything and a lot of stuff in Jerusalem, you know, Mm -hmm. the things of this and that. And I think what's interesting both about, you know, the pictures themselves and also the presentation in the Met in 2023 is that, you know, all of these pictures really do look like nobody lives there. You know, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, the way they're and, you know, the way they're framed and shot, obviously, because there were people there, but they're shot with kind of nobody, you know, in the foreground or background, like no bustling crowds, like just sort of, you know, these like elemental images of like, Mm -hmm. you know, straight out of the Old Testament. And it kind of... I don't know if I, I can't say that that was really like the intention uh, of the you know the curators or anything like that. But I could see you, you could walk through and look at these pictures if you're just like looking at them and kind of think, wow, like it was an empty land. Like nobody was yeah. there. I think with the exception of they did point out that with some of the Egyptian monuments, like sometimes the photographer would have like their guide or something like a local, like stand in the foreground or something to give a sense of scale of like how big the monuments were. But like, that's the only, those are the only people that sort of pop up. So there's no like crowd shots really. It's like, I I think I, I could be wrong. Maybe there's like one or two, but for the most part, you know, and especially like the holy sites in like Jerusalem, they're all shot with this kind of just emptiness of like no humanity there whatsoever. And I think that is baked very deeply into the Western consciousness about oh, yeah. that, that era in Palestine is that it was like like people had just forgotten about it. Like, I don't know. It's weird to think nowadays like what they forgot about Jerusalem, like the most holy city for like three big religions. Like really everybody just forgot like Al-Aqsa Mosque. People just, eh. For a while, like, it's the third most, you know, holy city in Islam, and they just, like, let it fall apart. Like, the, you know, people never left. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, there are yeah. far less people than there are, than there were in the 20th century. But, you know, that's because uh, many, many, many people moved there. But still, I think there were, I forget, we discussed the numbers last time, but a million or so inhabitants, maybe, in the entire region,
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that definitely, I don't know if that's the intention of the museum, but it certainly is the intention of, I think, the photographers, right? Like, a lot of the photographs that were taken during that time were for an audience of, especially by Americans, but also of others, right? Like, we talked about, like, how there was even kind of an uh orientalizing uh impulse that developed and i think we'll talk about this like within the sort of uh uh quote unquote like modernizing uh, discourse and impulse like of the the ottoman empire and of like the young turk revolution that happened during the time but also earlier with the tons and that reforms There was kind of like a set, like, you know, uh, a desire to create this relationship between, like, center and periphery between, like, the Turks who were, you know, the true core of the empire in the same way that, like, the British were, like, ruling over the Indians and not, you know, like, uh, and the Arabs and the others under Ottoman dominion who were subordinate uh, in a different sort of uh, new way, right, to kind of recreate this imperial uh, center periphery relationship uh that hadn't existed before and a lot of that like actually had to do with like you know presenting like you know ottoman dioramas at like the world's fair in europe like they were very concerned with how they appeared to like european eyes as i think we'll we'll read about mm-hmm. later in this episode but uh so even the photographs that photographers would take under uh, the auspices of the ottoman empire would sometimes have these elements of like you know uh catering to this uh, biblical idea of the Holy Land. and even mm-hmm. in uh, the 1870s when there was temporarily like a, a province of Jerusalem that was created, the tastes of, of Europeans and the the concern of Europeans with the, the biblical Holy Land was definitely an influence on that. So certainly like in photographs that Americans took, like the, you know there was this idea that either no, no one was there or that the the people there were, kind of like biblical characters and like nothing had like changed since those times at all yeah yeah like yeah, there is yeah no they're history, like literally npcs
0: like, and like a fantasy game like set in the bible yeah it's like basic like a exactly like a, film, like a christian like a pure flicks uh video game yes you know what I mean? yeah yeah yeah
2: there's like in this book by uh stephanie uh, stidham on uh inventing the holy land which we read for this week i think she's talking mostly about narratives but in particular she talks about mark twain's which i think we'll read uh some more from at uh some point, but she talks about this kind of transformation of Palestinians into biblical characters, like in these narratives and in these images. She says... Uh... A survey of Protestant pilgrimage narratives shows that most Protestant ministers throughout the period from between the end of the Civil War and the First World War in America commonly wrote that one could trace the customs in plain sight in Palestine straight back to Bible times. Americans often curiously thought of the Palestinians as ancient biblical figures, as Jesus himself, as well as Moses, Rebecca, David, and the disciples, and they gleaned information about Bible customs from the modern Ottoman Palestine culture. In the process, Palestinians became actors in the Protestant play, albeit as wooden representations that made the country appear more biblical, seemly, and holy. Mm. Yeah, yeah.
0: instead of a place that was grappling with the same, you know, encroaching modernisms and, like, political tensions and all kinds of things. And, you know, also, like, 2,000 years of history happening between it and biblical times and all these other things. Yeah, Yeah. just, like, kind of,
2: yeah, like actors for, like, touristic consumption, but who easily could, like, be cleared out because they don't actually uh live there or they existed at like the disposal of uh american tourists and there was a huge explosion of interest in that uh region at that time but I do want to get into that. But before we do, I was reading this book uh, that I think speaks to what we were talking about before, uh, Rediscovering Palestine by mm-hmm. uh, Beshara Dumani. And this focuses on kind of the merchant elite and the emergence of a, a, a cultural institutions like during this period, especially after 1840 and uh, Muhammad Ali's uprising uh, in Egypt. Uh, that we were talking about uh, extensively like last time, and I think that this uh, book, I really recommend this book, and I think this like really puts a lot of what we were saying last time like a, in in context, or like very succinctly kind of underlines why this is important to talk about, right, and why it's like why we're not like just talking about how like uh, starting this with I don't know the Zion the wave of Zionist immigration and things like that, and actually talking about this history because. I mean, as Dumani says, you know, as we were as this kind of just attest to, right, like he talks about the different sort of perceptions that um, exist about about Palestine. He says, generally speaking, most Arab nationalists view the entire Ottoman era as a period of oppressive Turkish rule, which stifled Arab culture and socioeconomic development and paved the way for European colonial control and the Zionist takeover of Palestine. Similarly, many Zionist historians represent Ottoman Palestine before European Jewish immigration as an economically devastated, politically chaotic, and sparsely populated region. The intellectual foundation for this shared image can be traced to the extensive literature published in the 19th and early 20th centuries by Westerners bent on, quote-unquote, discovering, hence reclaiming, the Holy Land from what they believed was a stagnant and declining Ottoman Empire. This literature detailed the landscape in excruciating detail but turned a blind eye to the native inhabitants who, at best, were portrayed as nostalgic icons of biblical times or, at worst, as obstacles to modernization. Even Islamists or Islamicist historians who argue for a golden age of Islamic justice shattered by Western intervention in the 19th century invoked the same dichotomy, which effectively partitions the history of Ottoman Palestine to two disconnected stages, traditional and modern. The perception of discontinuity was so powerful that, as of this writing, only two monographs that deal specifically with Palestine during the 18th century have been published in English, and none covers the 17th century. One wonders how it is possible to understand the social structure, cultural life, and economic development of Palestinian society during the Mandate period on the basis of such scanty knowledge about the preceding 400 years. So he goes on to talk about how. Uh, his book focuses on the Blues, right, which is in what's now the West Bank and was really the sort of heart of Ottoman Palestine and the center of its like, economic and or an important center of its uh, economic activity uh, and its population. And uh, he says that that is actually like an uncommon topic of focus because a lot of works focus on those communities that had direct contact with the West. Or, you know, were beachheads or cities that were beachheads for, for Western expansion, like uh, Jerusalem itself or, or, yes. or Haifa, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas really like Nablus was like uh, a really important hub that was kind of popping off like at that time, right? And his big point in this book, which I think is, is key, is that... Uh, You know, features usually associated with so-called modernization, he writes, such as commercial agriculture, a money economy in the rural areas, differentiation within the peasantry commoditization of land, and ties to the world market were present in Jabal Nablus before they were supposedly introduced by the Egyptian occupation, the Ottoman Tanzimat, or Jewish colonization. Similarly, so-called traditional forms of social and economic organization survived well into the 20th century. The point here is not to minimize the importance of 19th century developments. Rather, it is to recognize that the regions of greater Syria, including Jabal Nablus, had a great deal in common with the rest of the Mediterranean world and were not simply standing still until awakened by an expanding Europe and centralized Empire. In the words of Fernand Braudel, the Turkish Mediterranean in the 16th century lived and breathed with the same rhythms as the Christian, with identical problems and general trends about the same consequences. No doubt, Braudel's insight holds less true for the 18th and 19th centuries. Still, it clearly points out that a lively pulse beat every, everywhere in the Mediterranean, and our knowledge of the past cannot be advanced by essentializing difference, much less eliminating the agency of the Orient by subjecting its history to the dichotomies of traditional slash modern, active slash passive, and internal slash external. So, hitting kind of a point that we touch on next time about like these, you know, flawed dichotomies. But yeah. something that really struck me about this book is how he talks about the development of the, uh, uh, especially like the, the cotton industry and the soap industry in Nablus, following not only Dahir al uh uprising that we talked about, and also uh, Muhammad Ali's. And he identifies how important, like, you know, key families were in these industries. He makes a really uh, important point towards the end, not only, you know, that in general, like these industries, like and their importance and their autonomy from the Ottoman state in general is like uh, crucial to note, but also like the sort of How the uh, Palestinian, the movement for Palestinian nation or the idea of Palestine as a nation or of Palestinians as a people has its uh, or can be traced back to like these institutions and and to that time. Yeah, I'll try to read this part like towards the end here. He writes, the longevity of Ottoman rule, impressive by any standard, was based on maintaining flexible, permeable and porous boundaries of power and privilege between center and periphery. This pragmatic approach to the exercise of authority was essential to an empire that did not have the capability or even the intention of micromanaging the vast territories under its control. From the beginning, existing local forces were co-opted, by force or by persuasion, into a political arena that could potentially serve their interests as well as those of their superiors. This approach expressed itself most clearly in regions which, by the very nature of their location or character uh, of their social formation, were difficult and costly to control. Palestine, especially the central hill areas, was such a reason. Not until the 1840s did the Ottoman authorities begin to effectively reassert, or more accurately assert for the first time, direct central administrative and fiscal control over this historically autonomous enclave. At precisely the same time, European political and economic influence, on the rise for decades, increased dramatically following the blazing trail of the short-lived Egyptian occupation. It was the combination of these two circumstances, Ottoman centralization and integration to the world economy, that provided the larger context for relations between the Nablus' ruling elite and the Ottoman state. Meanwhile, the changing internal grid of Nablusi economic and political life allowed merchants to position themselves in an advantageous position vis-à-vis the ruling urban and rural families and eventually to anchor a new composite local elite. This elite was eager to make the most of the economic opportunities that the Egyptian occupation and Ottoman reforms offered, and was quite content to participate in the molding of a new political landscape through the Advisory Council. That was a pretty important thing during that time. The story of relations between the central Ottoman government and this local Nablusi elite during the Tanzimat era, therefore, is not about the imposition of Western-inspired modernization from above and knee-jerk resistance by old-fashioned traditional elements from below. Rather, it is a story about the clashing interests of two forces that spoke the same language and that were heavily though unequally dependent on each other in their discourse both forces seize on the long history of flexible and permeable boundaries between center and periphery as well as on the exigencies of rapidly changing political and economic realities in order to expand their respective space for maneuvering and in the process reinvent uh, their mutual relationship as I was saying, this point about uh, families, I'll just read the part where he underscores this. And then I to—I do want to mention one family that he talks about specifically that I think is is, is that I found to be pretty interesting. This is, a, I think, a, an important part. I think I'll, I'll maybe read this like a little bit at length here. But yeah. Mm-hmm. So he writes, over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, a new ruling elite and a new type of notable emerged in Jabal Nablus, as did a new political discourse. This elite was composed of the beneficiaries of the changing political economy of Jabal Nablus. Those who had access to capital and who were willing to invest, primarily through money lending, in the production, trade, and processing of agricultural commodities for regional and international markets. We mentioned, like the sort of cotton uh, market, like last time, yeah. and how that was important. Merchants were in the best position to take advantage of the new opportunities, as were those families and individuals of the old political and religious elite who were willing to subordinate their pride and devote most of their energies to playing an aggressive role in business matters. Over time, the boundaries separating these formerly disparate groups collapsed, as survivors within each, despite political differences and varying perceptions of their identity, came to share a material base characterized by a diverse portfolio—money lending, land ownership, urban real estate, trade, and soap manufacturing. The Nablus Advisory Council became the forum of this new composite elite of urban notables. These notables used the council to bargain with the Ottoman government over the boundaries of political authority and tried to promote their own interpretations of the meanings of citizenship, identity, custom, and tradition. The central government had little choice but to cooperate. It could not even replace the tax farmers with a salaried expatriate, bureaucratic cadre of its own, much less abolish the tax farms as the reforms publicly intended to do. As late as the mid-19th century, the only resident non-Nablusi official with any authority was the head of customs. Newly appointed along with an assistant, his correspondence was full of bitter complaints against the council, which in his opinion worked diligently to undermine his authority. The central government's attempt to play a much more direct and intrusive role in the affairs of Jabal Nablus through a local council that it did not fully control was bound to falter frequently. To complicate matters further, this new political discourse was conducted in the context of the fluid and transitional political atmosphere of the Tanzimat era, not to mention the dislocations caused by the Egyptian occupation. Thus, the emergence of a new configuration of political reference points took place one crisis at a time, that is, through the accumulation of dozens of separate negotiated deals concerning specific issues, the outcomes of which spilled over into an ever-widening political and cultural space. Most of these specific issues revolved around a struggle over access to and control of the rural surplus and its disposition and consequently over knowledge about the political economy of Jebel Nablus. Patiently and with remarkable persistence, the Ottoman government tried to gather information about a range of matters, from population figures to the bidding procedures for commodities collected as taxes in kind. Just as patiently and with great stubbornness, the advisory council members uh, spoon-fed their insatiable superiors a constructed reality, and often invoked a whole range of alleged traditions and customary practices, whether real or invented, which they insisted had to be respected. In each bargaining session, their responses to requests and admonitions from the central authorities were designed to facilitate their own objectives and, at the same time, to secure the state's recognition of their legitimacy." the Nablus' advisory council records provide many fascinating accounts of these encounters, and of the tense and complicated give-and-take that ensued. The disputes over the composition of the council's membership, the monitoring of the movement of the Zachair, taxes collected in kind, into and out of storehouses, the bidding procedures for these taxes, the methods of storing olive oil, the implementation of new customs regulations affecting the production and export of soap. In all these disputes, two primary contradictions stood out. The first, faced by the central authorities, concerned the double role of new bureaucratic institutions such as the Advisory Council. On the one hand, these institutions were formed in order to implement the state's reform policies, especially those concerning tax collection and conscription. On the other hand, they were manned by the very social elements that stood to lose from an uncensored implementation of these policies. Instead of faithfully carrying out government instructions, these local elements used their official positions to resist, alter, and only selectively execute those measures that best suited their own interests. For example, the council admitted into its ranks certain individuals who were specifically excluded by the state and excluded others who were supposed to hold a position. In one instance, then it only included the Nakib al-Ashraf, that is like the sort of uh, uh, leader of the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, despite repeated warnings to the contrary, and also made him head of the council. They also tried to reduce the number of people registered as inhabitants of Jabal Nablus even though they, along with the sheikhs of the city's quarters and the sub chiefs, put their signatures in the document containing the results of the population count immediately upon its completion. The council members also politely but vigorously challenged the central government's efforts to free the bidding process on taxes collected in kind by sabotaging bids made by outsiders and, in one case, by refusing to sell olive oil to merchants not from their city. Most important, they waged a protracted tax strike, involving hundreds of thousands of piasters, that lasted more than two years. The second contradiction was faced by the council members. On the one hand, they needed the political legitimacy, administrative power, and control over the local militia, all of which was offered by the state, in order to protect their privileges and to enforce the expropriation of the rural surplus from a disgruntled peasantry. On the other hand, they could not prevent the state from using its leverage to make inroads on their share of the rural surplus or to stop it from slowly chipping away at their long-standing tradition of self-rule. The unequal relationship was illustrated by the fact that they were forced, albeit after long delays, to submit to the central government selection procedures for membership in the council and to pay most of the taxes on soap exports that they had withheld. Caught between the two were the peasants of Jabal Nablus. Disarmed, conscripted, indebted, and largely abandoned by their longtime sub district chiefs, peasants tried to capitalize on the ambiguous political boundaries and contradictions between the central government and the local elite. Through violent resistance and petitions, they tried to drag the state into arbitrating their disputes with the sub district chiefs and the notables of Jabal Nablus. Both of the petitions discussed in Chapter 4 <laughs> called on the state to live up to two publicly held principles that, in their eyes, legitimated the state's right to tax its subjects, protection of the peasant base of the production and accountability of all citizens before the law. Both principles pose a challenge to the exploitative practices of the local ruling elite, and both put limits on this elite's room for mover- maneuvering. In so doing, the peasants were signaling their openness to the possibility of transforming their loyalties, or more accurately, of extending their self-definition to include not only their village, clan, and district, but also the state, in the sense of becoming citizens, not simply subjects. The Ottoman government consistently, uh, sorry, constantly vas- vacillated in its response to this open invitation, caught, as it were, between the need to centralize its control by co-opting local notables and the need to maintain its political legitimacy in the eyes of the peasants. Judging from its actions in the Jabal Nablus up to the last quarter of the 19th century, the Ottoman government, when forced to choose sides, usually backed the urban notables, albeit with occasional admonishments and slaps on the wrist. Nevertheless, the peasants often succeeded in effectively dragging uh, dragging in the state. From this perspective, one can see how the processes of Ottoman centralization and political recategorization of the population could be driven from below as much as from above. Peasants, in short, were not simply the goose that laid the golden egg that is, passive objects of competition for access and control between local merchant communities, ruling families, the Ottoman government, and foreign businessmen. Rather, they were an internally differentiated community whose members were fully capable of adjusting to new circumstances. The accelerated commercialization of agriculture, the further spread of a money economy, and the decline of the power of rural chiefs created numerous opportunities, not just difficulties. Speculation in rural production and trade in agricultural commodities, for example, were activities in which almost anyone with capital, no matter how small, engaged because they offered uh, the most promising avenues for upward mobility the 19th century in particular witnessed the growing influence of a middle peasantry that occupied a crucial mediating position between urban merchants and the mass of poorer peasants by reproducing urban business legal and social practices at the village level they amassed lands they constructed their own money lending and trade networks and eventually established shops and residences in the city their movement in increasing numbers to the Nablus and other urban centers, especially those along the coast, can be considered one of the central social and cultural dynamics of the modern period, indeed if the role of this group in Egypt and Syria during the same period is any indication. Uh, their story needs to be told in detail if we were to have a clear understanding of the history of Palestine during the late Ottoman and Mandate periods. Writing the Middle Peasantry into history is only one of a myriad of research projects. Uh, needed to excavate the wide-open field of the social, cultural, and economic history of Ottoman Palestine. The period from the late 16th to early 18th centuries remains largely largely unexcavated, even though it was during this time that the institutional and cultural practices of Ottoman rule became rooted, with all the consequences that entailed for the next two centuries. Similarly, Hebron, Nazareth, Gaza, and their hinterlands, to mention but a few places, still await systematic study for almost the entire Ottoman period, as do artisans, ulama, women, Bedouin, and social groups. Uh, Uh, Detailed knowledge about these places and groups can have significant implications for our conceptualization of the dynamics of Palestinian society during the British Mandate, as well as for understanding the context in which the Zionist movement laid the foundations for a future state. For example, one could argue that the pattern of Jewish settlements and land purchases were determined largely by ongoing political, demographic, and economic changes, uh, such as the process of commoditization of land, which began prior to the 1858 Land Code. By the same token, the pronounced social dimensions of the 1936-1939 to 1939 revolt against British rule revolved around the issues of debt, loss of land, vulnerability to the machinations of urban elites, and internal power struggles, all of which had their origins in the Ottoman period. Similarly, if we were to draw a line around the areas where the small land peasantry was rooted and where the population settlements were the most stable historically, we would get the Galilee and what is known today as the West Bank. It is not surprising, therefore, that the Galilee remains the heartland of the Palestinian Arab community in Israel. Nor was it simply a coincidence of, the, of war that the West Bank has become the geographical center of a future Palestinian state. Similar arguments could be made on the political and cultural levels. A curse when you look at the surnames of leading members of the Palestinian national movement. And maybe you've noticed this because I have. I, like, I was uh, just about
0: to say that reading A yeah. Hundred Years' War on Palestine by Khalidi. That, yeah, even um, his name, yeah. Well like he um, starts out with like basically yeah like my uncle my father my grandfather my great like he he Cops as one, you know, should. I think would covering a historical thing, he cops to like you know his family intergenerationally having like a stake in this basically by being yeah. kind of leading families like leading you know Palestinian Arab families. I forget yeah. what city they were from, but mm-hmm. uh, but then you know they were active from I think the late 1800s. Maybe his great yeah. grandfather Ruhi
2: Khalidi is related to him, right? I assume, uh, Ruhi al Khalidi, who's a big. Uh, figure in like i'm pretty uh, Palestinian sure politics and also a writer yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah he was uh, yeah he was a representative of jerusalem and the new ottoman government uh, by the young turks in mm. in 1911 so yeah uh, i think we he might come up in some of our readings but yeah uh anyway yeah as you're saying um,
0: yes yes so so that's true yeah yeah that's like so in order to understand the social formations that existed in say the early 20th century we're talking about like power structures and networks that developed during the ottoman era right
2: yeah uh, i mean just to like include what he what he says here yeah uh you know as well as you know if you look at the surnames of the members of the palestinian national movement the leading members as well as those of the palestinian members of jordanian cabinets over the past few generations it shows that the preponderant number belonged to families that constituted the core of the new composite elite which emerged during the 19th century Their political discourse, from speeches to actions, has been encoded by the experiences they and their ancestors had under Ottoman rule. Finally, until we can chart the economic, social, and cultural relations between the inhabitants of the various regions of Palestine during the Ottoman period, we cannot have a clear understanding of the politics of identity, nor can we confidently answer the questions of when, how, why, and in what ways Palestine became a nation in the minds of the people who call themselves Palestinians today. So yeah i mean this like stuff like going into like the politics of like soap and like cotton you know it can be like a little bit dry i mean you know we're talking to like our audience you know is a lot of people who are admirers of capital so you definitely see some of the the crossover uh there for sure but uh mm-hmm. in some of this like dry dealing with like linens and things like that but you know i definitely uh recommend this book and uh another book on networks of power in palestine the uh the author uh excuse me right now let me see if i can uh look it up, uh networks of power in Palestine. Yeah, Harel uh, Khorev Halewa, Networks of Power in Palestine Family, Society, and Politics since the 19th century because it really gets into, like, the institutions that made up Palestinian society and gives you, like, a sense of, like, an inhabited, like, lived in world that I think, you know, is uh, pretty, um, you know, important. And one family that uh, I definitely wanted to mention just to kind of, like, you know, make a point in addition to the Khalidi family, which I think is a good example. I mean, you see Tamimi a lot, right? And I think a lot of us know, like, Ahed Tamimi. Like, her family is also like really important. Um and has like a deep like history uh in that area. And you see a lot of prominent like Tamimis. But the Arafat family uh oh, no. is mentioned here as uh being they were in the <laughs> there's a great quote. All or most of the Arafats are textile merchants. They have not transcended this fate. Najib Arafat, who spoke these words, was no doubt taking pride in the continuity of tradition in both his family and his city, as well as in a line of work he has pursued since his early teens. Assertion of rootedness and affirmation of identity are two key elements of 20th century Palestinian nationalism, especially among members of established merchant families who were fairly successful and well-to-do during the Ottoman period. That is before the tragic upheavals of the Mandate period and beyond. In fact, the Arafat family is large, uh, and during the 19th century, some of its male members worked as soap manufacturers or artisans. By the end of that century, some Arafat men were the first in Nablus to join the ranks of the emerging professional middle class in greater Syria. Nevertheless, compared with even the families that produced textile merchants generation after generation, Sadr, Darwish Ahmad, Zakhar, Fethyan, uh, Zuaytyar, Darwaza, Khanim, Khaw- uh, Ghazawi, and Balbisi, among others, the RFS can be said to have maintained a most remarkable continuity of engagement in this profession. So yeah, it's it's interesting how important those two industries are. And yeah, I mean, it's definitely, uh, I think, consistent with the uh, SJ framework uh, around things. You know, this is definitely in many ways like a family history. Um, All
0: histories are, yeah, yeah, family histories in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, you can really see kind of like the, I don't know, the I feel like the sort of orthodox marxist view of like the progression of history kind of maps mm-hmm. on pretty cleanly to that of like you yeah. have a sort of like a nascent local bourgeoisie that attains some local power and then sort of bumps up against like the older sort of feudal authority of like you know the ottoman center and then kind of these ideas of nationalism of kind of I think in their case in the 19th century, you probably would say some kind of like bourgeois, liberal in the economic sense, like nationalism, like wisps of this start to develop. And so it wasn't just dropped on them when like the European Jewish settlers showed up or when the European colonial various agencies, you know, uh, showed up. Like these things were part of a process that was like happening across the globe at the time. And yeah. like Palestine was, even though it's not exactly as ho- historically well documented as we would like, or you know, we haven't really, you know, historians, all of them keep mentioning that, like mm-hmm. that, basically they, you know, they wish that there was more of an abundance of uh, writing about different aspects of society in this period. But it seems like similar historical dynamics were going on in Palestine that were going on elsewhere. You know? yeah. So it wasn't this special, like, empty place that history was not touching. I mean, it was part of the Ottoman Empire and you had uh, this rise in, like, uh, the rise of a sort of business class, like a middle business class and maybe kind of petty bourgeois, maybe in the grand scheme of things. But still, yeah. like, that kind of mentality uh, starting to take shape and then nationalism kind of rising up. Uh, yeah. And them with it. It was
2: a bit and I think we'll get into this like it's a bit complicated because there was also like a like air of nationalism and not all the people who were uh, members of this this elite or this local elite were you know necessarily partisans of, of of Arab nationalism, right? because there was mm-hmm. also kind of a sentiment of like I guess like Ottomanism is what you would call it, right? because it was unsure yeah, like kind what kind of a, shape. Like a
0: federal federalism, yeah, Ottomanism
2: something kind of like thing. that. yeah, and like exactly what like or even those who are nationalists, there were shades there as well. like what form would nationalism take, right? Like are you a nationalist? like there is an idea that you could like be, you know, a, a nationalist or, you know, be like kind of like a cultural nationalist, like within an uh, an Ottoman framework. So there's a lot yeah. of, and also like the, the sort of like feudal versus bourgeois thing is, is like complicated by the fact that like this, they were basically like kind of like two you know reform initiatives right one that was like instigated by this kind of uh like centralizing effort by like the ottoman state right because they weren't just kind of like trying to rest on their laurels of and i mean their system wasn't really feudal per se but that, that's true like, it wasn't it uh, wasn't
0: that the, the the local like bourgeoisie was like the sole force of modernization no, not like, at all it was also happening at the ottoman end because they were trying to modernize at the same time in certain ways and yeah. There's and like in fact, complex, like tensions kind of uh, occurring in, in both sides. Like, Yeah.
2: And yeah. And as we were talking about last time, like in this process, like it often was and what is kind of being described here is how like the majority of the population, like, you know, the peasantry and these like Sunni Muslim or, you know, uh, Arab like uh, sort of pro- emerging professional middle class. Like, they were actually kind of trying to advocate themselves in an environment where, like, they were liable to get thrown under the bus because they didn't have, like, Western patrons, right? And the Ottoman state, like, was often kind of viewing them as—even though there was a little bit of, like, as if you got with the program and you tried to, like, you know, teach— the like uncivilized arabs like around you like the you know the ottoman turkish way and like you know the new sort of image of the new ottoman man then you had could somehow have some conditional inclusion in the idea of like the ottoman elite But in a way, like, they weren't necessarily, like, uh, patronizing the Arab majority or uh, the Arab Muslim majority in the way that, like, you know, Western powers were sort of patrons of uh, minorities. So it was, yeah, like a complex situation. Yeah. So there were two, like, tendencies of of change, right, that had, like, various dimensions to them. So I think, like, the sort of teleological... I think the kind of Orthodox Marxist thing of like the sort of teleological development like is like a not like the most perfect fit. But there is a little bit like you do see like, yeah, they were integrating into a capitalist world economy. So that element like definitely was there. But the two visions of how to do that. Yeah, yeah. both
0: groups were had an eye towards how do we integrate with that and they both had their kind of own interests and we're trying yeah. to achieve it in like the most optimal way possible
2: and that is kind of like what it w- was at least a force in unleashing like a lot of chaos like during this time or a lot of like violence and probably was a factor in the outbreak of world war one as we'll eventually get to so yeah
0: yeah i mean well yeah like i mean even in you know bosnia was yes you know a part of and when you're reading earlier about the kind of decentralized like slightly hands-off approach like when i've been reading about the ottoman rule in the balkans like there's a lot of similarities i spotted between how they handled bosnia where it was yes under ottoman rule for hundreds of years but A series of kind of like Bosnian Muslim, you know, Slavic families pretty much ran things uh, Mm -hmm. in a local sense and with like not too much direct interference or input from, you know, the center, basically. And they had this kind of like light touch, like cybernetic approach to like letting people on the periphery like kind of run their own affairs to some extent while Mm -hmm. staying under kind of the broader Ottoman realm. But yeah, I mean very big consequences for like everybody in the 20th century like yeah. again, like going through all this Ottoman history like the the extent to which like the the geopolitical or like the political death of that entity and yes. all of the things that followed from that are so critical and central yeah. to many if not most of the conflicts uh, that went on, you know, if not a central kind of factor an important secondary factor or you know or element in you know the world wars and the cold war and everything that's happened like in you know the middle east region and all kinds of stuff um yeah
2: a lot of it is very reminiscent i feel of the cold war in terms of what like happened around the decline and the ultimate like breakup of of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, I think I,
0: I, think I mentioned that, that I'm getting yeah. this eerie, like similarity of like how to kill, like how to kill, you know, yeah. the, again, not, not trying to say Soviet, you know, it was like an empire, but it was kind of an imperium, like yeah. in, this, in, mm-hmm. in, the, in its organizational sense, like it had its like sphere of influence. It was similar and, and
2: had... being like a contiguous, like empire or like dominion, you know, that like kind of had like a decentralized aspect to it. Uh, yeah. And, it had, it had
0: like republics, but yeah. like also a very strong center. So in that yeah. sense, so it's like how to kill an empire, like slowly and like get away yeah. with it. Is like they did it first with the Ottoman Empire, and then I think many of the same forces are like their, you know, direct uh descendants, either just literal or kind of like idea or class or ideological descendants, carried it out again at the end of the twentieth century with you know the Soviet Union, and we've also seen similarly like the chaos that that has kind of unleashed. So you know this business of like empire killing uh, can be quite dangerous and lead to a lot of uh, unpredictable outcomes.
2: Yeah, and the Balkans issue like that was part of the impetus for the uh, the quote unquote like Const, uh, Constantinople Conference, right? In uh, 1876 where basically like all of the great powers like met without the ottomans in Istanbul <laughs> to figure out like what the reform what how they would reform after the Russo-Turkish War as we mentioned last time like all of their like allies got together and like decided like what how they were going to reform but yeah yeah. All your fakest um, friends
0: got together. And, um, yes. And uh, yeah,
2: there was like, you know, uh, that was the Ottoman constitution was introduced after uh, that conference. But then it was quickly kind of like rescinded by uh, Abdul Hamid, Sultan Abdul Hamid after the 1877 uh, uh, Russo-Turkish war broke out. Then it was uh, basically it was only brought back or the constitution was only brought back with the Young Turk Revolution later on. But it was because of, like, you know, the Herzegovinian uprising and the April uprising. Um, in oh, okay, okay. The Bulgarians, yeah. I guess, was the April uprising. And, uh, yeah.
0: That's right. And that would that would recur as, like, inciting incidents for World War One, with, like, the Balkan Wars. Yeah. Uh, when mm-hmm. they all got together and attacked the Ottomans. Then, of course, you know, Archduke Franz Ferdinand popped off in uh, Sarajevo. Yeah. And,
2: it's crazy. The, the world went. It's crazy, you know. Just like reading from the Wikipedia article about about this, because uh, you know I had just kind of like offhandedly remembered it when you were talking about uh, the Balkans. But although the Ottoman representatives participated in the plenaries of the conference, they were not invited to the preceding working sessions at which the great powers negotiated and elaborated their agreement. Even though this was held That's in fun. Istanbul. <laughs> yeah, Lord Salisbury and uh, Count uh, Ignatiev played a leading role. Wait, in the Wait, Lord process. Salisbury. Yeah. Um, um, Ignatius You know, yeah, uh,
0: you know uh, Lord I didn't know this but, but again Going back to families on all sides You know when I was reading uh, Khalidi's Hundred Years War on Palestine You know that uh, Lord Salisbury had a nephew Named uh, Balfour
2: Right yes
0: So I mean these guys were You know it's a little bit like uh, You know the stepson of Samuel Pizar uh, mm. Anthony Blinken Being like the Secretary of State today um we got intergenerational diplomats uh and they're very sus aka bloody balfour who you know was chief secretary of ireland and that was the name the irish gave him we'll get into that down the road (laughs) of like the like disturbing similarities of like basically exporting like all of the horrible tactics like they learned in ireland uh directly into palestine but yeah Yeah. not to get ahead of ourselves so Um, yeah yeah fuck lord salisbury um your his mm -hmm. steak sucks
2: so yeah that's like the context in which like a bunch of like um, you know uh, in the years after the civil war in particular like a bunch of american like tourists and missionaries were like coming to palestine and like portraying it as like totally empty like all this stuff was like happening like you know it was like there's a booming like industry like an international market like emerging like uh you know really a culture that has that was like deeply rooted there. And yeah, but I guess that they just saw like a bunch of biblical characters. In fact, just a couple years before before the uh, Constantinople Conference or the Istanbul Conference, I guess is what it should have been called. But in 1872, uh, in this book by uh, Johann Bossel, uh, Hamidian Palestine. Uh, he talks about, like, the administrative district of Palestine, which I think I was mentioning before. It's, it's pretty interesting, right? It's, like, in this first chapter, this author it talks about, um, he says, the foundations for the story of Hamidian Palestine were laid several years before the beginning of Sultan Abdul the uh, II's reign when the district of Jerusalem received a new administrative status in 1872. According to contemporary observers, the local response to this event was considerably more enthusiastic than the change on the imperial throne four years later. In July 1872, news reached the inhabitants of Jerusalem that a momentous change was about to uh, take place in the administrative status of their city and indeed in the whole of Palestine. The entire country, which over the previous decades had been administered in the framework of the three districts subordinate to Damascus, Jerusalem in the south and Nablus and Acre in the north, was to be, or Akka, as we've decided that we we're going to call it, uh, was to be united <laughs> uh, in a newly created imperial province, uh, Vilayet, uh, with Jerusalem and its capital. The local Hebrew newspaper, uh, Ha -ha Havet Salet, uh, placed this decision in the context of changes in the imperial government in Istanbul. The sultan had appointed a new grand vizier, Mahmoud Nadim Pasha, who initiated a major reshuffle of the central administration. Ministers changed their portfolios, respected Pashas were exiled, low-ranking officials were elevated, and high-ranking ones were demoted, wrote the newspaper in its characteristic solemn tone, ringing with biblical connotations. The article continues. The great prince, that is the grand vizier, also laid his hand on Jerusalem to increase her honor. Jerusalem, which was Mutasaf uh, district, uh, Mutasaf okay, has now been elevated to the level of a vilayet, uh, and all the towns of Palestine have been added to it, among them the district of Nablus, Salt, and the towns of the Transjordan. From now on, it, the province of Jerusalem, will no longer be subordinate to the Vali or governor of Damascus. The much-praised uh, Suraya Pasha, governor of the province of Syria, has been appointed vali of Jerusalem. So, yeah, I think that this existed for, for a little while. I think that it ultimately was uh, dissolved. But uh, mm-hmm. European consuls also applauded the measure, which, according to the report by uh, a report by the Austrian consul, had fulfilled, quote, "...one of the greatest wishes of the local population." Yet, after only a few days, the vicissitudes of Ottoman politics again took the local population by surprise. The Grand Vizier's decision clearly met with resistance within government circles. At first, there was a negative reaction from Damascus. Uh, Subhi Pasha, the governor of Jerusalem's former mother province, did not want to accept the fact that his responsibilities had been curtailed and offered his recognition. In early August, another Grand Vizier, the influential uh, Midhav Pasha, was appointed with immediate consequences for the administrative reorganization of Palestine. And this is one of the same guys who represented uh, the Ottomans, uh, actually. Uh, at the conference in 1876, uh, but for, at the plenaries, not in the working session. But on uh, 23rd July, less than a week after Sereya Pasha had taken office, a telegram from the central government arrived stating the creation of the Palestinian province had been revoked. Accordingly, the district of Nablus and Acre Aga were again severed from Jerusalem. Nevertheless, the district of Jerusalem remain, retained an elevated status. It was now declared a, quote, unattached or independent district, that is, an autonomous sub-province that was not subordinate to any other provincial capital, but was directly administered by the interior ministry in istanbul Hmm. so yeah okay
0: so makes some sense
2: in context you know of what was going on at the time
0: so briefly established as its own thing so for all the uh it was only greater syria heads out there yeah like political circumstances led to its revocation but it's not like nobody ever recognized it as uh, a place worthy of being its own administrative region right
2: Yes, but that definitely sure was like... influenced by a certain uh, European, in there definitely was influenced by like a European interest in this as uh, the Holy Land, right, and of in Jerusalem in particular. Um, yes. You know, I'm trying to find like a, key, uh, a representative part. Even more important was the direct European involvement in Palestine, especially that of Britain, Russia, France, and Prussia. As with the Ottomans, the Europeans' economic interests in Palestine were rather limited. Much greater, however, were their cultural, religious, and political aspirations in the quote-unquote Holy Land. There was a growing fascination with Palestine within European societies that went beyond the traditional religious attachment to the holy sites of Christianity. The introduction of regular steamship services in the Mediterranean around the middle of the century had brought the quote-unquote Holy Land within the reach of European travelers. And from then on, a constantly rising number of Christian pilgrims and tourists entered the country via the port of Jaffa. The European power's formal presence was limited to consulates and post offices, an indirect but no less important avenue of influence was the support for the missionary, philanthropic, cultural, and economic activities of their own nationals. Thereby they made an extensive use of the quote-unquote capitulations, bilateral treaties between the Ottoman Empire and various western states that granted the subjects of these states an almost extraterritorial status. In these circumstances, every private, religious, cultural, or philanthropic initiative by Westerners in the Holy Land was regarded as an asset for the respective protective power.
0: Damn. So they got almost yeah. like emb- embassy status yeah, for pretty every much. NGO that yeah. wanted to go there. That's yes. wild. So, yeah, we had talked a lot last time about how this was like kind of the chief vehicle of like. The penetration of yes. palestine basically by the western powers was through these like philanthropic missionary you know i'm sure many of them it seems you know reading over the histories uh, uh sincere or like well some of them you know well-intentioned but also like some of them you know maybe their intentions were like sincere but their intentions were also like some crazy shit about you know like some crazy protestant shit about uh, yeah. how this is all part of like a prophetic plan to you know yes. re-civilize like re- basically do a, a peaceful crusade i think as some of the catholics called it right you know yeah. we can't forget like that history lurking in the background of these you know nice like missionaries um <laughs> definitely not have, yeah if they have um, like embassy status that's pretty decent protection as far as 19th century missionaries go like you know yeah a lot of other frontiers quote-unquote frontiers and they're a little more dangerous but
2: and there was a self-conscious like equation of the two I think that even Herzl would compare, like, early Zionists to, like, cowboys, like, in the American West. Oh, yeah. Like, I've had a you know, quote where, yeah. like,
0: he was met on his one trip to Palestine. The only <laughs> trip he ever took in his yeah. entire life to Palestine, which right. apparently his main reason for going was, was only to meet To, get, Kaiser, to meet right. Kaiserville home. Because and, he like,
2: loved Germany. He, oh, loved, he Germany. loved Germany. He was, like, obsessed with Germany. So yeah. The um, um, yeah. And,
0: but then, at one point, he went out to his settlement, and a bunch of, like, Zionist cowboys, like, wrote up to him and like tears came to his eyes because like they reminded him (laughs) of cowboys in the american (laughs) West. Uh,
2: um yeah but anyway so that like that's part of the reason why like there obviously was some resistance to like creating a province that would be called uh philistine or, or palestine right because there was concern about like arousing european interest and like keeping it divided might and keeping jerusalem as like a special district like directly under uh, the control of uh, Istanbul that like would maybe help frustrate the European interests there. Um, contain
0: it a little bit like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And keep an eye on things directly. And uh, yeah, you can see like, that's the other thing is that like everybody at various points, like even in the 19th century was, it seems by their writings and things they said was well aware of what they were doing on both sides like the the europeans are very self-conscious that they wanted to penetrate using sort of soft power like cultural forces they wanted to penetrate into palestine and put down little like seeds of uh, you know influence that they could you know gain something from and like the ottomans were hip to that pretty early on because they're not stupid And the local Palestinians were nervous about it from the very beginning, you know, um, even before it was, quote unquote, like Zionists coming. Like what Mm -hmm. even when it was like these European Christian powers coming, even though, as we've covered, you know, the Palestine was quite Christian, you know, it's more Christian than... I think a lot of people realize, like, right, like, I don't know if it was, mm-hmm. I don't know what the overall percentage was, but 25, like 30%, maybe something along those lines, like sure by far the, the second, b- by but, far but the biggest minority yeah. group, like, by a mile yeah, in the region. Than, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But even then, like there, there was a, an anxiety and a worry about these, you know, European organizations coming in and like planting their seeds uh yes which,
2: they were not only like wise to it they were like just incredibly like almost paranoid like about it i would say like you know they were, they about were it. very they were very proper concerned about like very it. Yeah.
0: properly noited about it like yeah. they justifiably so as you know we'll see at every turn like their worst fears are kind of confirmed in terms of the, the negative intentions of outsiders coming in and saying this or that and yeah. the outsiders are like very aware, like we have to lie to all. There was one quote, I forget it was Herzl or uh, Weisman or something. It was like, like do never like when you're talking to like a Muslim or like an Arab or a Turk or whatever, like never imply anything that like the Zionist project involves like moving the original inhabitants off their land like otherwise we're like we're going to lose the sympathy of the world so like just don't don't talk about that part you know kind yeah, of thing that reminds then... me
2: of exactly what he said about the armenians too like never are they to expect that we want to use them to create a jewish state um <laughs> yeah like when he was like uh when he agreed to like help like launder the reputation of the sultan after like some of the armenian massacres because like they were obviously as part of this whole eastern question there was always kind of like this humanitarian concern and like herzl yeah. offered to like you know manipulate the media <laughs> to uh the yeah. pr
0: of it like the pr yeah. factor uh is there from the very beginning um yeah but people um. weren't you know dumb and they weren't you know the, these problems like i feel like many people you know saw what could and then and ended up happening like far and oh yeah you know yeah
2: they did yes and in it's fact, just that in the history,
0: yeah. like in the retelling of it now, we get told, for some reason, we get told this slightly different narrative that it's like makes all these sources kind of surprising when...
2: Well, like, like some of the popular narratives that people believe are like insane that like the Palestinians mm-hmm. like came up with the idea to do the Holocaust or whatever <laughs> or something, you know, like that's what Netanyahu like has said. That, like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll get to the Grand Mufti to do eventually, the Holocaust. But, yeah, uh, but once again, yeah. it's like once you start um,
0: digging into like who is the Grand Mufti, like what is the Grand, the position of Grand yeah. Mufti, and then you're like, oh my god, this is all made, by, made up by the British. No you yeah, know or something like that or just also that's just not true like that never no, happened. That, that's, that not, with that's not that's remotely happened. true
2: yeah it's no uh, but, yeah but they definitely did not get with the with idea to do the holocaust from <laughs> palestinians in any way shape or form burn them um, like yeah you know, like
0: okay yeah i'm sure um yes uh, i
2: mean there was like definitely like and i mean there was also, like, as we just said, like, there was, like, um, like participation, like, and uh, involvement with, like, European powers, like, economically, like, on the part of Arab elites in Palestine, like, and even, like, military, like, collaboration, like, in Muhammad Ali's, like, uh, revolt, right, uh, you know, in Egypt and, and uh, the... Uh, Levant so it wasn't like total uh, aversions. and this is true of like uh, Jewish immigrants as well like it wasn't like uniform hostility and in fact like some people who were like suspicious were kind of like you know uh, criticized for being overly so and maybe like maybe things were kind of as I think we'll talk about maybe things were like kind of still undetermined like how things would play out then so maybe like they were being pessimistic and they ended up being vindicated about what happened but maybe you know it didn't necessarily have to pan out that way so the uh, people sure. who weren't suspicious, weren't necessarily wrong in their optimism or, you know, uh, weren't necessarily totally off base to, to, to have some optimism about it or to, uh, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, yeah, like it wasn't, I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit, but like the, not like everyone who was a, even a Jewish immigrant to, or even like a self or like a self-conceived Zionist, like was as psycho as Theodore Herzl. You know, like now exactly. he's seen as being like, you know, the ultimate visionary and yeah, George Washington, idiot. yeah, like, exactly, and that kind like kind of thing. But no, yeah.
0: he was like, he was on one. I mean, he was like very radical, you know, even among the milieu of like overall, yeah, like Zionism, you know, in the 1890s. Like, this guy is the one. Like, the most hardcore, kind of crazy, hyper-ambitious guy that, you know, a lot of people were saying, like, uh, this guy's kind of reckless, like, he's unrealistic. I mean, his ideas did not just sound, like, serious and, like, reasonable when he first came out with it. They were seen as... Maybe it's like Der Judenstaat is a highly polemical document that is not meant to be taken literally, but like expresses, you know, a political desire. But people, it was still far off the idea that you would actually send, you know, hundreds of thousands of European Jews to Palestine and turn it into like an official Jewish state seemed pretty fanciful when it was first kind of thrown out there.
2: Yeah. And, you know, even some of the books that I read that were generally like kind of like critical of like the uh, state of Israel or like the Zionist project in Herzl's mold, like kind of represented this narrative that or kind of, you know, created this narrative that. Herzl like he just like was a superstar and like he was so charismatic and like his ideas just like you know made so much sense and like conformed so well with like biblical prophecy that like as soon as he like started uh, you know propounding them all Jews got on board which is like just so false like it could not, not be true. more false like there was tons of like you know resistance and other visions of like the future of the Jewish people like in Europe or in the Ottoman Empire right like uh, this is like time. a hotly contested
0: yeah. thing in the late 1800s like the yeah i guess and well so-called... into
2: like the well up to world war one probably beyond uh you know haven't researched as deeply that period yet because i know we won't we won't get to it quite yet but definitely like all the way up to world war one like there was uh, argument about it you know it wasn't like uh universally subscribed to certainly not among like even european jews
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. and also the the small but like you know uh the jewish population that was that had been in uh palestine for generations like the the sephardic and uh there were sephardic who event the
2: like the mizrahi jews i think think that that is like a i think that was kind of like made up like uh later on like the the name uh mizrahi to refer to them like because yeah it's like the hebrew word for for oriental or eastern yeah, it's like a sort I of grouping. These are like Jews think, of the Ottoman
0: Empire, kind of?
2: Ba- yeah, like they were Jews from, like, um, you know, Yemen, Egypt, Iran, Lebanon. Like, you know, yeah, basically Ottoman Jews. You know, people who were in Sephardi or uh, were in Ashkenazi. And I think mm-hmm. it was, yeah, like it was either during the mandate or like actually after the declaration of the state of Israel that like this term was, was coined. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting.
0: Think, yeah. So not all of them... Who were living in ottoman palestine were necessarily on board with the zionist settlement project when it started i think i think particularly when Herzl was trying to make deals that basically recognized like him as like being the president of like every jew living in palestine and like the people who had been there you know which yeah. i think was for about four percent of the population were kind of like hey whoa buddy like who are you? You know, like, I'm just living my life. You know, I'm not trying to get recruited into this, like, European thing that's happening. But so it's like that all kind of gets whitewashed nowadays. And we assume that, like, everyone just, you know, not just the Jewish community, but, like, all the Europe, most of the European leaders eventually, like, rallied behind uh, Theodore Herzl and, like, his, his Zionist yeah. dream. I mean, the European yeah, leaders, like, basically did. But... There- There is so much more to that story.
2: I yeah there's changes. a great article i think i posted it on twitter like a little while ago because it was in reply to like for whatever reason i've seen people like point this out for it is true that like in israel now like uh Mizrahi jews like are like you know they're certainly not like uniformly like on the left in fact like they tend to be like you know yeah uh, like hard rights uh, like liquid type people right like that is like you know generally and ashkenazi like are more liable to be like uh what passes for like a left or live in israel but like for whatever i think it's just like to show off they know something like they know a fact like all these like dirtbag like people like on uh, like kind of trying to obfuscate like the colonial like and white supremacist like history and nature of israel to kind of like score some kind of points against like i don't know like wokeness or whatever like i don't even get what they're trying to get at but like it's oh. this kind of like cool thing for a couple of weeks i noticed where it's like to point out that like misrahi jews like are Uh, right wing and they hate Palestinians or want to kill them. You know, there's a lot of history there like into how this like came to be the case. And that doesn't in any way negate the critique of israel as like definitely something that has like a strong like white supremacist current and like it's uh ideological is it it supposed to be an
0: own because they like have darker skin but they hate yes exactly it's an own like like, saying like supremacy
2: right yeah it's an own i guess it's like punching (laughs) left or something where it's like but like in a in a based uh an epic like hilarious it's like uh, way thank you like because i guess some people are like oh talking about like you know decolonization or whatever and they're like uh, uh. i don't get it I, I really don't understand it it's like some weird it's almost this weird non-sequitur but i think yeah i don't know but i did see some people like kind of like going on and about that as if i mean it's something definitely to talk about down the line and it's it's interesting and i recommend that article which i think is still up on uh my twitter but i like almost saying like yeah like israel's like you know genocidal but they're not it's not a racist thing where it's like you yeah know, they hate like Thomas
0: because they're <laughs> demons it, it obviously has nothing to do with race or like racism i think mean, that's what you're <laughs> getting um, at. um i don't know um, i think um, that's how the 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 thought process works i i really can't be sure because it is insane but
2: once we get like you know to the history of like the mandate era uh uh palestine I think that's definitely something uh, worth talking about because like, yeah, like, you know, they've definitely faced like decades of like persecution, like Misrahi Jews, like not, you know, not much compared to what the uh, Palestinians are suffering now. But like definitely like there is like a long, long legacy of like racism. Uh,
0: You could say like blue eye privilege. Though, I mean, the plenty of there are Palestinians with blue eyes, you know, and stuff. But, you know. I'm thinking of the, the ashkenazi privilege kind of right like euro privilege
2: yes definitely you like euro privilege for instance like uh ben gurion uh said like you know about jews from morocco they had no education their customs are those of the arabs the moroccan jew took a lot from the moroccan arabs the culture of morocco would lot not like to have here we do not want israelis to become arabs we are in duty. We are duty bound to fight against the spirit of the Levant, which corrupts individuals and societies, and to preserve an authentic Jewish values or the authentic Jewish values as they crystallized in the European diaspora. So that's
0: literally that's like yeah. One of the so, most extremely anti semitic things I've ever heard.
2: Well, <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. Oh, Ben Gurion. Uh, There's a whole yeah. A whole feast so I of recommend Joseph
2: there. Massad's writing on that. <laughs> Yeah, I did want to, uh, in terms of this point in like our uh, narratives, so to speak, I thought it would be valuable to check in, like on the like the United States, like, and where the United States, like, factors into all this, or Americans. We touched on it a little bit uh, at the beginning, but I feel like you know, right Definitely. at this point, America wasn't really a great power, or the U.S. wasn't really a great power, right? It was still like uh, in the late 19th century, uh, you know, emerging from yeah, the Civil War. Yeah, we hadn't War.
0: slid into like whole position as like Israel's number one best friend of all time. No, we had not. Uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, there was no Israel, but like even Zionism's number one best friend. It was still... Yeah. Or even
2: like a global empire, like a world power in the way that like, you know, it is today. Uh, Emerging, emerging, but not Mm -hmm. not quite. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I mean, still actually riven by a civil war for some of the time that we're talking about. And in fact, it was out of the civil war that a lot of this fervor for Palestine emerged. Like we were just talking before about... Uh, this article, um, American Palestine, which touches on, you know, Mark Twain's writings about the Holy Land, which I definitely want to touch on because he said some absolutely depraved things. Mark Twain's definitely canceled after like what I read in his, uh, wow. innocence his abroad. stock
0: has been dropping. Uh, yeah. Well, did you do something recently. else? Uh, uh, I forget we brought up something related to Mark Twain.
2: I think uh, we might have mentioned it last time. Uh, yeah. He yeah. was racist against Palestinians and Arabs in general, but. Yeah, but uh, this article, uh, American Palestine, opens up with this anecdote about Abraham Lincoln. during a ca- great. Yeah. During a carriage ride with his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, on Good Friday, April 14th, 1865, the day of his assassination, Abraham Lincoln discussed taking a trip now that the Civil War had drawn to a close. They debated whether to travel to California or to take a special pilgrimage to Jerusalem. One account even has Lincoln later that night turning to his wife moments before the assassin's ball tears through his skull to whisper... How I should like to visit Jerusalem sometime. No. His his wife wrote in a letter uh, a year later that the president appeared to anticipate much pleasure from a visit to Palestine, although he was at least now rejoicing in the presence of his savior and was in the midst of the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, Wow.
0: uh, President Lincoln using the P word. Interesting. Interesting.
2: Yeah, well, that was what it was called back then. Everyone called it that. Like, uh, there was no state yeah. of Israel. Like, uh, you know, there was an idea of like Israel as like the you know Jewish people or uh, Eretz Yisrael. Maybe some Jews would talk about, but generally it was called Palestine. In fact, like the Ottomans didn't want to use the term Philistine in like referring to the province, the like the Palestinian province that they established because they were because that was the word that had all these like connotations for Europeans. Uh, definitely uh, was made
0: into like a slur in the New yeah, Testament. Yeah, now it's like Um, never
2: existed oh yeah the philistines yeah that's calling somebody
0: a philistine i'm still kind of like shaky about like yeah i just know that it's like like a
2: weird like german like orientalist like history to why philistine like has that connotation now like, yeah. I
0: associate it with, like, the connotation is, like, the kind of, like, an ignorant but, like, thinks they know it all type of person. Like, it's someone who, like, like hates, fool.
2: hates art. It's someone who's, like, pr- yeah, like, proudly despises art and intellect, you know? Like, so, yeah. Like,
0: I see. I, they're, like, a chud, basically.
2: Yeah, basically. Like, it's not that they don't, that they're ignorant or, like, they have pretensions to be, like, artistic. It's, like, they just think that art doesn't matter a person hostile to aesthetic and intellectual discourse. Right. Um, but how did this like come to Hmm. be like, how is this picked up from like the biblical use of Philistines? Um, I thought,
0: I mean, I thought I always, I I feel like I learned this, like it, catholic school at some point that like the philistines were like a group in one of the stories in the gospels that are trying to erm jesus like at the temple or something and then he like counter erms the shit out of them so those are the and pharisees you're thinking of. The i know pharisees, you're right, right? The, that was the pharisees so then where did philistines the philistines
2: are like in the old testament and, and they're right, like yeah. you know bad that's guys. who they
0: got all the the force david cut off all the foreskins of the philistines um, i think those
2: are the amalekites so that's like different uh, okay. That's. A I thought an Israeli
0: like information minister talked about cutting foreskins off. He did, he, but he was. I don't think he was Samson. talking about the Philistines. I think he was oh, talking Samson. about the Amalek. Okay. The, the Amalekites, right.
2: uh, different people from the Old Testament that some foreskins were cut off from. Cool. Um, um But. Yeah, Yeah. um, or
0: Samson killed all the Philistines by pulling down the pillars in the temple, right?
2: (laughs) I let me see. The Philistines are always referred to without the definite article in the Torah. Well, they did have a treaty with the the uh, Abraham had a treaty with Abimelech, the Philistine king.
0: Ancient enemies of the (laughs)
2: non-Israelites of the Promised Land. When using the context of Samson, Saul, and David. Uh, The Philistines dominated the Israelites in the terms of Samson, who fought and killed over a thousand. Yeah, there you go. That's right. They even captured the Ark of the Covenant. No. Wow. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, I think that's a thing. That minister I saw that was talking about cutting off foreskins was saying, you know, for thousands of years, like, these Philistines, like, all they do is just, like, exist to, like, kill Jews. Like, it's all they care about. Oh, right. Yeah, Netanyahu
2: was talking about the Amalekites uh, and, like, you know, quoting the Torah... But I'm not. It might have been someone different uh, who was talking about the Philistines.
0: Okay, they disappear from written record following the conquest of the Levant by Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar II towards the end of the seventh century BC, uh, when Ashkelon, Ekron, and many other cities in the region were completely destroyed. Damn. Yeah, so, it's funny though that yeah. But then that etymology of like Philistine just meaning like an idiot who like doesn't appreciate art or something uh, must have come out much more. must have come about, like, you know, uh, much more recently. And now that is, I mean, in Arabic, Philistine is like, right? I mean, that's.
2: Uh, uh, Philistine, yeah, that has meant Palestine for a long time. That's been the name of that region for, for, you know, because it has been known as like Palestine for a long time before the Arab conquests.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I mean like it's it's unfortunate that century. now like um, they if you point that out then to Westerners that's like, ooh, they're Philistines, you know, that like, just instinctually. So it's like uh Yeah. It's like negative PR for some reason like Okay,
2: interesting. The contemporary meaning of Philistine derives from Matthew Arnold's adaptation to English of the German word Philister, as applied by university students in their antagonistic relations with the townspeople of Jena, Germany, where in the year 1689, a violent altercation broke out, resulting in several deaths. Preaching about the riot, George Heinrich Goetze... Uh, the ecclesiastical superintendent applied the word uh, Philister in his sermon, analyzing the social class hostilities between students and townspeople. Uh, Goetze, okay, is that literally his name is Go- Goetze? Goetze. Uh, Goetze. Yeah. <laughs> Address the town versus gown matter with an admonishing sermon, The Philistines be upon ye, drawn from the book of Judges, Samson versus the Philistines of the Tanakh, adopted into the Christian Old Testament. So, all right. So that's like where it comes from, I guess. Like this guy, this ecclesiastical superintendent, was preaching about a riot between townspeople and university students, and he used like some analogy to the Philistines, and that is why now Philistine means like someone who hates like the intellect and art.
0: That's some right. wow, wow! What a dumb etymology! Like the, and then <laughs> it really ends obscure. up like smearing really everybody that lives in Palestine. Like it's so bizarre. It's like somebody was mad about like the equivalent of like Antifa college students in. Like the 1600s. And then. Well, just he was actually like mad about like, like MAGA
2: chuds who were like anti campus uh, culture. Cause they like. There oh, was a riot between okay. like townies and, and university students. So he was. Oh, like, so he
0: was attacking the townies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Wow. And then that. And okay. Bizarre. Yeah. So uh, ancient yeah. enemies, etc., etc. et cetera. Et cetera like yeah, there you never go. never existed to yeah um attack israel like yes (laughs) but on that on
2: that that subject of yeah so uh i thought it was interesting that this author points out how abraham lincoln's like two impulses were to go either to jerusalem or to go to california Um, i I thought about that i just immediately
0: thought like this could be heaven or this could be hell yeah yeah (laughs)
2: exactly yeah he writes i think pretty eloquently like i often relate this anecdote to illustrate the seemingly polar opposite quote-unquote directions of travel and cultural consciousness americans faced in the post-Civil War period. Jerusalem represented the cultural core, the legacy to which increasing numbers of Americans, their sense of identity shattered by the war, would travel to reclaim, to reconfirm the validity and authenticity of Protestant-dominated American religious national myth. California, on the other hand, offered the New Eden, a land of wealth and abundance. The newest inscription of America's myth as a new holy land, a land of special providential destiny. East and West, Both destinies quote-unquote manifest, both directions of imperial globalization linked by expectations and anxieties expressed in both religious and secular registers, a link paralleled by the soon-to-be-completed transcontinental railroad in the west and the Suez Canal in the east. The relationship between California, or America overall, and Ottoman Palestine involved an intertextuality, a layering of Bible, travel accounts, and millennialist fantasies, along with a convoluted interterritoriality, an overlap of geographic signifiers. The practice of determining an exegetical relationship to the land of quote-unquote reading Palestinian as well as American landscapes of scriptural import, what Cotton Mather, uh, who famously did nothing <laughs> oh, wrong, okay. called uh, quote-unquote Christianography, made uh, this relationship even more complex. Yeah, so a wow. bunch of SJ uh, residences okay, there. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, cooking yeah well the palestine uh, not the palestines the uh the puritans were very into that idea of uh like the united states or of america as like the new jerusalem or like the new, new
0: jerusalem that's right yeah, that's right. right and then yeah. of course like in the westward expansion the mormons especially you know invoking the word zion a lot right yeah like mm-hmm. and yes and coming up with like biblical justifications for why like jesus like came to north america well, I mean, not just the angel Moroni, you know, yeah. delivered <laughs> tablets. But right. like basically that, yeah, there was like a whole subplot about like North America also being mm. kind of like the new promised land uh, yes. for Christians. And uh, yeah, you, the parallels be strong. I mean, yes. manifest destiny all the way down. Yeah. Do you want to uh, keep reading this? This article is good.
2: Uh, yeah, we definitely can. Uh, Lincoln did not travel to the earthly Jerusalem, but General Grant, after his presidency, did make the pilgrimage during his 1877-79 globe-circling tour. As a general approached Jerusalem, he carried three books to serve as his guides. The Bible, Essential Textual Grid, Murray's Handbook, The Standard Tour Guide, and Mark Twain's The Innocents Abroad, published in 1869, a satiric comic burlesque of Holy Land travel books and an irreverent send-up of self-satisfied sanctimoniousness. Mm-hmm. while Mark Twain's travel book was enormously popular and it is still regarded as the most read travel book in American literature that blows my mind only a relatively modest portion of it focuses on the Middle East nonetheless the innocence abroad has played a crucial role in presenting Ottoman Palestine to the American imagination yet how did it become an essential part of Grant's tour as well as those of other Holy Land travelers during this period how did the book's irreverent quote-unquote touristic appropriation dramatize changes in American attitudes towards Ottoman Palestine particularly with the long of early Zionist colonization. Mark Twain, already a celebrated journalist from California and Nevada, made the journey as part of the 1867 tour on board the Quaker City. The wild humorist of the Pacific Slope was hired by a San Francisco newspaper to write travel letters as part of the first large-scale tourist excursion cruise. I bask in the happiness of being for once in my life drifting with a tide of a great popular movement, he writes of the explosion of post-Civil War travel to Europe. While traveling through Europe and appropriating Europe's cultural legacy comprised most of the journey, the grand goal of the expedition was the Holy Land. Much of the book satirizes the pretensions of the northern industrial and commercial elite who travel with the crude southerner reconstructed as a westerner. The pleasure trip was a funeral excursion without a corpse, he writes. There is nothing exhilarating about a funeral excursion without a corpse. At the same time, Twain lambasts seekers of high culture, articulating the newly developing sensibilities of the business of sightseeing, albeit in parodic fashion. I cannot think of half the places we went to or what we particularly saw. We had no disposition to examine carefully into anything at all. We only wanted to glance and go, to move, keep moving. Very true. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean, most of his vitriol, I feel like I, you know, I looked over this and like, at least in the parts where he does talk about like the Arab world or the Ottoman Empire. Most of his vitriol is certainly reserved for the uh, natives of that uh, uh, empire. Linked to the mode of constant accumulation of tourist sites is the ambition to find the truly, authentically exotic, something thoroughly and uncompromisingly foreign, such as in Tangier, the first Arab city he visits, which he finds foreign from top to bottom, foreign from center to circumference, foreign inside and outside and all around. Nothing anywhere about to dilute its foreignness, nothing to remind us of any other people or any other land under the sun. Under At the same the time, using the figure of the wandering Jew observing his group, Twain voices the view of the anti-tourist, who has a consuming contempt for the ignorant, complacent asses that go scurrying about the world in these railroading days and call it traveling. Tourist sensibility is rendered even more problematic in the Holy Land because of the complex intertextuality beyond even the Bible. I can tell, almost, in set phrase, what travelers will say when they see tabor nazareth jericho and jerusalem because they have the books they will smouch their ideas from the pilgrims will tell of palestine when they get home not as it appeared to them but as it appeared to thompson and robinson and grimes with a tense varied to suit each pilgrim's creed you know referring to all these other sort of tourist accounts of the the holy land that have been published before the landscape of palestine was seen as evincing proof of the bible's authenticity With deep involvement with millennialist scenarios, particularly those promoting the doctrine of Jewish restoration, Palestine was also seen spreading evidences of prophecies in the sight of their dramatic fulfillment, even of projects to quote-unquote facilitate prophecy, such as the Adams colony in Jaffa. As Reverend DeWitt Talmadge put it, uh, God, with his left hand, built Palestine, and with his right, wrote the scriptures, the two hands of the same being. And in proportion, as Palestine is brought under close inspection, the Bible will be found more glorious and more true.
0: All right, but another one of this is obsession with like trying to like prove the Bible, yeah, like scientifically in like the late nineteenth century.
2: Yes, and this like again, as we kind of talked about last time, like this uh, idea of like the restoration of the Jews becoming itself like mainstream, and also a certain interpretation of it becoming mainstream because at one time, like, not only was this not necessarily a mainstream idea, but it also, like, had many different, like, permutations about, like, how exactly. Because obviously, like, if you think about it for one second, the correspondence between, like, what the Bible says and uh, if it can even be made at all, but the correspondence between that and, like, the contemporary state of Israel is incredibly tenuous. <laughs> incredibly tenuous. Yeah. like yeah, but I, Or I, even I, the Zionist think, project at all. Yeah. And like, I,
0: I think even if you, like, incorporate, like, Talmudic and, like, rabbinic, rabbinical teachings you know beyond like the torah and the old testament i mean there's like there's explanations for why like the jews were exiled out of their homeland then there's like kind of far off prophecies about like when mashiach comes back then like the temple will be rebuilt but that's kind of like an end times thing so like it's you know what I mean like the, the whole thing is is not it's not like like I hear so many people say today it's like well for two thousand years all Jews across the world were <laughs> yeah like always thinking always about Palestine to, and going yeah. back to Israel they just didn't have the chance yet you know no and no, now yeah. like they're finally ready but it's like no nah, not really like yes that's like the ancestral historic like homeland and and everything but like two thousand yeah. years is a, a long. Ta- even a thousand like, years like yeah i don't
2: say it time. doesn't have any spiritual importance but it's kind of like saying like all catholics just want to live in the vatican like you know <laughs> they all just want to go there and live there like it's their dream or like all muslims just want to live in, in mecca like that yeah yeah you know like that's where they want to live
0: yeah th- this um, hyper association with like the land being like the critical thing while of course in the scriptures like there's these stories about you know moses and the the, the canaanites and you know, the kingdom of Israel and the Babylonian exile and all this stuff, it wasn't taken in the way that it is, like, interpreted nowadays, like, almost universally. Everybody sympathetic to Zionism is like, oh, this is been, almost like this is the core of the religion, when it, it very much was not the core of, I would say, yeah. particularly, like, European uh, Judaism in this No,
2: time. in fact, like, the main line, like, like, Herzl had to contend with, like, the much more popular idea of, like, trying to assimilate like Mm -hmm. trying to become like a part of whatever society you like lived in rather than Mm -hmm. like this idea of Zionism as we we know it now like yeah it certainly wasn't like and now like yeah it's very very core to like American Judaism you know for sure and imagine European Judaism as well like the it's like heavily emphasized like devotion to Israel I would say arguably you know like i don't like uh even though like uh, my mom is jewish and like uh you know i i but i wasn't like really raised with like too much contact with jewish institutions but i would venture based on what experience i do have that like israel is more important than god in like american judaism you know institutionally speaking and like overall you know not to say there that aren't feels like anecdotally, devoted religious jews yeah that like, feels but,
0: anecdotally you know, true from like people yeah. i've Talk to who are raised to be like supportive of Israel, but also are like secular reform Jews. Like, Mm -hmm. if you have that combination, then yeah, like Israel is you know it's like here and And like all the schools and stuff
2: always have like IDF soldiers come and like tell them about how important it is. Like, it's like really, really deeply like embedded. But that definitely has not always been the case. Like, it's a definitely not. Yeah, I mean, yeah,
0: the, the whole phenomenon like secular Zionism or like political Zionism. Also, like there's there's people that take it, you know, Zionism is like a purely kind of like religious idea. And then the Herzl's like, I guess, innovation was converting it into something that secular people could support as well. That was like it it used religion for its justification, but it also was like very accommodating to very secular people, sort of the broader group. And that's why I think you can see that today where it's not necessarily like somebody could be very, very Zionist and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're high-key religious. Like, you know, they, they go to temple every week and observe. Yeah. Like they could be sort of a, you know, like the way we have holiday Catholics. Like, you know, they do, you know, Rosh Hashanah, yeah. et cetera. But like do the Seder. But uh, other than that, like not that religious. But like the political Zionist project is like, You know, they have a a religious level uh, devotion Mm -hmm. to it, um, which took a lot of time to like massage that into being the hegemonic position. And in this era, I guess what's interesting about the Americans kind of interfacing with it in the 1800s is because it's still you see how much of not a settled question that is. And in fact... A lot of people are just reflexively like, no, that's like a stupid idea. Like, no, like that. Yeah, that that would never work. Like, why? Uh." And and oftentimes for I think you see like a lot of times with kind of like anti-Semitic reason, just like knee jerk anti-Semitic reasons. kind of a not being sympathetic to it but also you know sometimes just more practical kind of things of like what yeah Yeah, like this
2: book by stephanie uh, stidham rogers that i mentioned inventing the holy land i didn't love this book because i felt like there were a lot of like sort of as i said like certain things taken for granted like the incredible immediate success of Herzl because like i guess all jews had just like never thought of the idea of like you know creating israel before and once they heard it from theodore Herzl, they all jumped on board like things like that, you know, saying that, like, uh, Palestine was bar- badly governed for centuries and so it was barren, like, you know, myths like that. But it does document a lot of, like, like really, like, uh, tr- like creepy and weird, like, statements from 19th century Protestants uh, visiting Palestine or reflecting on Palestine. One of the big, like, notions that I feel like she draws attention to that is important is the idea that Palestine was cursed by God, which was huge. Mark Twain mentions it, like everyone was constantly, because the Jews killed Jesus and their conception, right? So, Uh, like, for instance, uh, traveling in uh, the 1880s, Matilda Serrao reflected upon what happened to Palestine because the Jews rejected Christ and Jesus cursed various towns and their inhabitants. Palestine was the home of all that rejected Jesus. The high city, Jerusalem, perched above ravines and lying among the debris of the centuries might, it seem, be the abode not of men and women and children, but the dwelling place of ruthless emotions, just pride and arrogance and hate. As I sat down for a long while looking down on Jerusalem, I thought to myself, that is undoubtedly the place that crucified Jesus Christ. Like an echo to my thought came (laughs) a terrible reply, and it would probably do so again. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god! Um, wow. So yeah, wow. Philip Schaff said that Jerusalem was the most holy and the most unholy place on earth. It's interesting, yeah. Go.
0: The this like very SJ Pilled article, you know, is talking about the universal disappointment that most travel writers, American travel writers, had when they traveled to the Holy Land. Sort of like what you read with Twain there, where yeah, the, the, the Palestine, the Holy Land of their their Christian imagination never lives up to like what they find there. And they end up having like kind of like a hostile reaction to it. Let's see. Um, Yeah.
2: I remember hearing a story of like a woman who like went to go visit Egypt and was like, when she got there, she was like, why is everyone wearing nightgowns? Uh, Because she was expecting to see like ancient Egypt, you know, like all these like people dressed like in the hieroglyphs and stuff like that, you know, and the, the paintings on the ancient Egyptian. Uh, monuments and stuff like, uh, but they were all wearing, you know, like thobes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mark Twain said, in order to profit by this tour, Twain decides he must unlearn a great many things I have somehow absorbed concerning Palestine, and he devises what he calls quote a system of reduction, bringing Palestine within an American context. quote The state of Missouri could be split into three Palestines, and there would then be enough material left for part of another, possibly a whole one, the Galilee a, quote, solemn, sailless, tintless lake looking just as expressionless and unpoetical when we leave its sublime history out of the question as any metropolitan reservoir in Christendom is a disappointment and cannot stand up against Lake Tahoe. The Galilee can, quote, no more be compared to Tahoe than a meridian of longitude is to a rainbow. Jeez, it's really harsh. I mean, I get spoiled Californian, I guess. Lake Tahoe is mm-hmm. very pretty. But uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a quarter of a Missouri. It's so small, you know, that that's... Yeah, that's... I, especially you, from Americans, like, that I think the smallness does trip out people even today if they go to Israel, like, how tiny it is. Yeah. Like you could probably drive from the Gaza area up, like, to... I mean, you could drive up and down the country in, like, a few hours, I think. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think, I think that part where he talks about the Galilee is when he really has probably the most like anti-Semitic part of his uh, discussion. I'm trying to say, I'm, I'm searching for it by, yeah, hats. So he's talking about Tiberius, which as we talked about was like, you know, the main Jewish settlement. Um, and it's interesting that he perceives, like he says that Tiberius is the holiest city of Judaism. Like, he says that Tiberias is to Jews what Jerusalem is to Christians, what? which is very interesting. <laughs> yeah, like uh, yeah. The, he says, uh, the dream met here last for 300 years. Tiberias was the metropolis of the Jews in Palestine. It is one of the four holy cities of the Israelites, and it is to them what Mecca is to the Mohammedan and Jerusalem to the Christian. That's uh, what he said. I'm pretty <laughs> sure Jeru- impre- Yeah, yeah. yeah no, he's definitely holy, right? wrong. Yes, yeah. but it's weird that he said that. It's their yeah. Mecca. Yeah, he said that it's their Mecca. But yeah, so he was very uh, negative about the, the Jews that he encountered there. He says, we are camping this place now, just within the city walls of Tiberias. We went into the town before nightfall and looked at its people. We cared nothing about its houses. Its people are best examined at a distance. They are particularly uncomely Jews, Arabs, and Negroes. Squalor and poverty are the pride of Tiberius." Um, okay. uh, yeah, he says uh, they say that the long nosed lanky, dyspeptic looking body snatchers with the indescribable hats on and a long curl dangling down in front of each ear are the old familiar self-righteous Pharisees we read of in scriptures. Verily they look it. Judging merely by their general style and without other evidence, one might easily suspect that self-righteousness was their specialty. Yeah, it's just like straight out of the
0: Bible, like straight out of my Marvel Marvel movie. Um, Yeah, yeah. Wow.
2: Yeah, and that is not like the uh the the limit the worst of, it. of it. Yeah, no, uh, it is well, not. Well, I, I found
0: a pretty bad one here. Um Okay. Yeah, since we're on a yeah, I think Twain, he's ended up on the bad list. Uh I, yeah. I don't know we can save him. Uh so let's see. These conventions, he's talking about, you know the expectations of of expectation of theatricality of discrepancy of disappointment and even of affirmation of the sacred character of the american landscape have all been displayed by previous writers so much so that twain can parody all of them while incorporating new dimensions to expectation discrepancy and disappointment twain adds appropriation and americanization of palestinian realities through comic mock violence Quote, we are camped near Temnin-El-Foca, he relates, a name which the boys have simplified a good deal for the sake of convenience and spelling. They call it Jacksonville. Coming across a group of Arab villagers, he makes the usual comparison of Arabs with Indians, but adding how yeah. the villagers, quote, sat in silence and with tireless patience watched our every motion with that vile, uncomplaining impoliteness, which is so truly Indian, and which makes a white man so nervous and uncomfortable and savage that he wants to exterminate the whole tribe. <laughs> All uh, right. Such violence would be dismissed as crude chauvinism, except that the narrator undermines himself continually his colonial fantasies reveal ironies such as the quote savagery of the white man and the burlesque cowardice of the narrator nonetheless the effect is to take the holy land and figuratively americanize its geography and population okay so i think he was doing an irony there Um, oh yeah at least he was doing a bit he was doing a bit Um, basically where he's like i'm an american chud like i he's sitting there in silence uh with tireless patience Mm-hmm. which which it makes me so nervous and uncomfortable that i want to exterminate his whole tribe so he's like joking lol like that's what stupid americans think about you know for uh, but
2: it's a little uh, ambiguous yeah. it's ambiguous i it's think ambiguous. Uh, yeah, it's ambiguous yeah it's, that's yeah that's the power of, of irony um, i guess so right well like, what's the, was was he doing a bit when he wrote when he wrote this because this is one of my uh, my my right. my picks from from uh, innocence abroad okay Uh, The most famous travel uh, piece of travel writing uh, in America ever. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies. Where Sodom and Gomorrah reared their domes and towers, that solemn sea now floods the plain, in whose bitter waters no living thing exists, over whose waveless surface the blistering air hangs motionless and dead, about whose borders nothing grows but weeds and scattering tufts of cane, and that treacherous fruit that promises refreshment to parching lips but turns to ashes at the touch. "'Nazareth is forlorn. About that fort of Jordan where the hosts of Israel entered the promised land with songs of rejoicing, one finds only a squalid camp of fantastic Bedouins of the desert. Jericho, the accursed, lies a moldering ruin today, even as Joshua's miracle left it more than 3,000 years ago. Bethlehem and Bethany and their poverty and their humiliation have nothing about them now to remind one they once knew the high honor of the Savior's presence.' The hallowed spot where the shepherds watched their flocks by night and where the angels sang peace on earth, goodwill to man, is untenanted by any living creature and unblessed by any feature that is pleasant to the eye. Definitely not true that there is no one in Bethlehem. Anyway, no living creature. Anyway, renowned. No ad- living creature. Renowned Jerusalem itself, the stateliest name in history, has lost all its ancient grandeur and has become a pauper village. The riches of Solomon are no longer there to compel the admiration of visiting Oriental queens. The wonderful temple, which was the pride and glory of Israel, is gone, and the Ottoman Crescent is lifted above the spot where, on that most memorable day in the annals of the world, they reared the Holy Cross. The noted Sea of Galilee, where the Roman fleets once rode at anchor and the disciples of the Savior sailed in their ships, was long ago deserted by the devotees of war and commerce, and its borders are a silent wilderness. Capernaum is a shapeless ruin. Magdala is the home of beggared Arabs. Uh, Bethsaida and uh, Chorazin have vanished from the earth. And the desert places round about them, where thousands of men once listened to the Savior's voice and ate the miraculous bread, sleep in the hush of a solitude that is inhabited only by birds of prey and skulking foxes. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? Palestine is no more of this workaday world. It is sacred to poetry and tradition. It is dreamland. Uh, it okay. is dreamland. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That,
0: okay. Yeah. No. I mean, he's now. I understand, like the Mark Twain tendency in like American travel journalism. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I, and like. Mark Twain might have been like the first American dirtbag. Yeah. In a lot of ways. He kind of,
2: like, yeah, he does remind me a little bit of like a vice journalist. Exactly. Like of. a vice yeah. journalist, or, like exiled
0: yeah. or like uh It's giving Thompson. me like Matt
2: Taibbi and like, Russia vibes yeah, a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Like, like, yeah, that's what I yeah, mean. It's like a this bit, fucking yeah.
0: backwards fucking it, country. It's like yeah. Shit, like blah, yeah. blah, blah. But like they're like he's coded as being like brilliant and like yeah and like uh,
2: subversive somehow even though it's like literally exactly like 100 percent supportive of like the worst impulses of empire <laughs> like, yeah yeah uh, even yeah.
0: dennis johnson's writing in liberia has that he, he, big mark twain energy like yeah. in that kind of like contempt for like what a shitty place so like the, it's like this american attitude of like you know but you're kind of like you're also talking shit about like the colonizers or whoever the Western kind of identify like like the like Mark Twain's talking shit about the bourgeois people on the tour and how silly and fucking dumb they are and stuff like that. It's like Hunter Thompson yeah. like taking acid at the Kentucky Derby like yeah, it's that kind of it it is that fight vi- that fucking vice taibi kind of a uh, yeah thing that even though nobody credits mark twain anymore as being like like nobody does a betel's thing with mark twain but i feel like they should because they all like i don't know if they all secretly read him or it's just seeped into american the american mentality that like being an edgy dilettante uh traveler you know writing these like punchy irreverent kind of like mean you know what i mean like i yeah. don't know it's weird like yeah it's weird uh definitely yeah. Yeah. yeah a lot of shit talking even about the uh the catholic and eastern orthodox shrines i guess yeah was, was popular back then right um, mark twain writes of the church of the holy sepulcher uh which is uh catholic i believe uh, when one stands where the Saviour was crucified, he finds it all he can do to keep it strictly before his mind that Christ was not crucified in a Catholic Church. He must remind himself every now and then that the great event transpired in the open air and not in a gloomy, candle-lighted cell in a little corner of a vase church upstairs, a small cell all bejeweled and bespangled with flashy ornamentation in execrable taste. <laughs>
2: like, uh,
0: nice. calm down, man. All right, yeah, he hates it. He hates flashy Catholic shrines. Yeah. yeah. Then, uh, But he also hates tourists, so he's a real tourist, man. Um, yeah,
2: exactly. He's a uh, radical... Tourist, this is an interesting part that, uh, or I feel like this is the most uh, one of the most loathsome uh, parts that he has here in, in innocence abroad that makes uh, an interesting uh, connection to uh, the the context the Ottoman context that we were just talking about. He ta- he's talking about his uh, his trip to to Damascus, and he says, uh, "Then we were called the tomb of Muhammad's or uh, Mohammed's children." and at a tomb which reported to be that of St. George, who killed the dragon, and so on, out to the hollow place under a rock where Paul hid during his flight till his pursuers gave him up, and to the mausoleum of the 5,000 Christians who were massacred in Damascus in 1861 by the Turks. So this is referring to, like, the Druze-Maronite conflict of 1861, which I think spilled over into into Syria, but yeah, we'll maybe talk about that at a length in a bit. So they say those narrow streets ran blood for several days, and that many women, that men, women, and children were butchered indiscriminately and left to rot by hundreds all through the Christian quarter. They say further that the stench was dreadful. All the Christians who could get away fled from the city, and the Mohammedans would not defile their hands by burying the infidel dogs. The thirst for blood extended to the highlands of Hermon and anti-Lebanon, and in a short time, 25,000 more Christians were massacred and their possessions laid waste. How they hate a Christian in Damascus, and pretty much all over Turkeydom as well. And how they will pay for it when Russia turns her guns upon them again. It is soothing (laughs) to the heart to abuse England and France for interposing to save the Ottoman Empire from the destruction it has so richly deserved for a thousand years. It hurts my vanity to see these pagans refuse to eat of food that has been cooked for us, or to eat from a dish we have eaten from, or to drink from a goat skin which we have put with our Christian lips, except by filtering the water through a rag which they put over the mouth of it uh, or through a sponge." I have never disliked a, uh, you know, I apologize, but, you know, this is a quotation. Wow. Yeah, this is a quotation, so I apologize, but uh, I have never disliked a Chinaman as I do these degraded Turks and Arabs. And when Russia is ready to war with them again, I hope England and France will not find it good breeding or good judgment to interfere. So this is kind of part of the reason wow. why, you know, some of this paranoia exists, like in the Ottoman sphere, because you constantly have people being like, what these fucking Ottoman pieces of shit, like to step out of line, like one will cry, like, you know, they're just like salivating, you know, uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, and this and is that, Mark
0: Twain, like a hip modern, you know, author, like not even, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm starting to see like maybe it's not all a bit. Uh, that part doesn't feel like a bit. That feels like an angry Substack post.
2: Yes, and that is like actually, it's interesting because that actually is part of like the the reason, or that like at least was you know again. When we're talking about, like, these events that took place, like, where, like, they were massacres of innocent people, like, it's not an excuse, but it is part of the context for why, like, these things uh, uh, took place or how they unfolded. And there's a good article about this, actually. It comes up in Osama Makdisi's article, uh, Rethinking Ottoman Imperialism where he's talking about something that I think is, is, uh, you know, is a good overview of what we're going to talk about uh, going into like the Young Turk Revolution and the sort of uh, lead up to World War One and Ottoman Palestine in that context. You know, he kind of recapitulates what we've been talking about a little bit uh, thus far, but he says the age of Ottoman modernity was inaugurated in 1839. Mahmud II's concerted efforts had begun with the abolition of the Janissaries in 1826, but quickly spread to sartorial and administrative domains and culminated in an era of wholesale modernization known as Tanzimat. The centerpiece of the Tanzimat reforms was the Gulhan Decree issued by Mahmud II's successor, Abdul Majid, in 1839 at a time when the Ottoman Empire lay on the brink of total collapse due to Muhammad Ali's imperial ambitions. Among its provisions was the solemn declaration of the equality of Muslim and non-Muslim subjects before the law. Beginning with the Gulhan Decree, uh, or maybe Gulhani, I don't actually know, but uh, imperial reformers abandoned the term reyaya in favor of uh, tebah. With like the suppression of the Janissaries and new measures of Tanzimat, which represented a clear break with the past, were couched in a language that suggested a reversion to tradition. However, the Gülhane Proclamation and the eighteen fifty six Hati Humayun, Uh, which followed the Crimean War, formally committed the empire to a course of modernization under effective Western tutelage. The Tanzimat opened the empire to what anthropologist Johannes Fabian has described as the evolutionary quote-unquote stream of time, an idea of a denial of coevalness that was at the heart of modern European colonialism. Although the discourse of reform in the Ottoman Empire was not itself new, 19th century reform was part of a wider culture of modernity. In this culture, the Ottoman Empire sought to culturally define itself as an equal player, especially after the 1856 Treaty of Paris, which formally inducted the Ottoman Empire as a member of the European state system on a world stage of civilization. It was a world stage dominated in Ottoman eyes by mischievous but modern European states, and a world stage in which Istanbul was only one of many centers. As part of this project of imperial, political, and cultural reassertion and redefinition, indeed as part of its own cultural logic that placed it on par with other supposedly civilized states, Ottoman modernization generated its discursive opposite, the pre-modern within the empire, be it in the sands of Arabia or in uh, Sebel-i-Duruz. Places like Sebel-i-Duruz uh, or Jebel-i-Duruz. Yeah, obviously it's Jebel. I f- keep forgetting that in Turkish, the C's or G's uh, but, or, or J's, but I, I get it most of the time. Jebel-i-Duruz, the mountain, right? Or what Europeans referred to as Mount Lebanon became locations of the pre-modern, places of danger and anxiety that threatened to destabilize the course of modernization. Intellectual, architectural and political and social westernization occurred in Istanbul, creating what uh, Goshek has called a new vision of Ottoman society. Ottoman reformers aspired toward an elusive modernity, which they sought, which they thought was within their grasp. If only they could de- deflect external European hostility, which retarded Ottoman advancement, while also identifying and eliminating internal pre-modern problems, which invited European interference. This Ottoman attempt to modernize the empire was both motivated and plagued by a feeling of constant crisis. The first aspect of this crisis manifested itself in the often desperate efforts of reforming officials to outline the exact parameters of modern Ottoman sovereignty in an age of European hegemony had to reach the 19th century El Dorado, modernity, without becoming a colony of Europe in a century when European empires came to control more than 85% of the surface of the globe. European powers played an increasingly intrusive role in the internal affairs of the empire by emphasizing their duty to protect the non-Muslim minorities from a putative Islamic and Asiatic despotism. Ottoman officials, while they were acutely aware of their need to modernize along European lines, decried repeated European interference on behalf of non-Muslim minorities as a sinister attempts to weaken the empire through sectarian means. In Djabali Duruz, because uh, of Eastern question politics, which were uh, centered on the expulsion of the Egyptian troops from Syria following the renewed Egyptian-Ottoman hostilities in 1839, and because of episodes of intercommunal violence in the two decades that followed the inauguration of the Tanzimat, The crisis of representation expressed itself in dramatic form. For one thing, European intervention was continuous in the region, and European influence was expressed in military terms, through the British defeat of Muhammad Ali in 1840, in cultural terms, with the introduction of Jesuit and Protestant missionary education and medicine, and in economic terms, with the imposition of the Free Trade Treaties of 1838. For another... Local notables and commoners in jebelie de Ruz and the surrounding regions seized the initiative between 1840 and 1860 in interpreting the Tanzimat and did so with the knowledge that European powers played a vital role in their own political, material, and cultural future. Some, such as members of the Maronite church establishment, advocated a Maronite-dominated Lebanon— in accordance with the Tanzimat stipulation to protect non-Muslim subjects. Some, such as secular notables from the Maronite Khazin and Druze uh, Janbulat families, insisted that the Tanzimat, because it was premised on an idea of restoring a glorious past, legitimize a full restoration of the old regime's social order. And some, such as the Maronite muleteer uh, uh, Tanyus uh, Shaheen, who led a popular uprising against Khazin domination in 1859 in the predominantly Maronite district of uh, Kisrawan, understood the Tanzimat to mean social as well as religious equality, and therefore contended that the Tanzimat legitimized social revolution. He and his followers demanded what they saw as their right to representation and equality guaranteed to them by the imperial reform edicts because they were Christian subjects. A second aspect of this crisis lay in the redefinition of the relationship between rulers and subjects in a modernizing empire. The traditional imperial attitude, which had presupposed an invulnerable Ottoman domain of obedience, could no longer be maintained. The temporality of traditional politics, which had reflected a shared understanding between rulers and ruled of the functioning of politics in a heterogeneous empire, and which had in fact regulated an Ottoman accommodation of Druze, quote-unquote, heretics and Christian, quote-unquote, infidels, was effectively broken by the urgency of Ottoman modernization. In their race against destruction of by advanced Europeans, Ottoman reformers sought to locate and extinguish what they considered to be the pre-modern within their empire. Politics was no longer simply about bargaining with subjects, as Karen Barkey has described the relationship between the Ottoman state and the Jalal, uh, Jalalis in the early modern Anatolian provinces of the empire, as much as it was of bargaining and performing with Europeans on the world stage of modernization. So this is where he gets into what uh, what uh, Mark Twain was referring to. Um okay. This feeling of crisis was dramatically illustrated by the transformation of the hitherto marginal region of Jebel de Ruz into a problem of central importance. It was precisely the fact of a rural, neglected, and relatively unknown region that caused the Ottomans' anxiety, for the questions that confronted them were how to incorporate Jebel de Ruz into a project of Ottoman modernization, and more specifically how to address, mitigate, and ultimately resolve Jebeli de Ruz's modernity within the context of a modern politics with, and against, Europe. The dispatches and reports of Ottoman officials in the two decades following the Tanzimahat indicated that they had no clear answer to these questions. For the first time, in fact, Ottoman governors described the region as Mount Lebanon, or Jebel-i-Lubnan, conforming to European nomenclature. The term Jebel-i-Duruz was abandoned. For the first time, really, Mount Lebanon entered Ottoman imperial consciousness in a sustained manner. Ottoman officials began to discuss what they referred to Jevali Lubnan Meselesi, the question of Mount Lebanon, indicating the location of Mount Lebanon within a constellation of other problems that threatened to thwart imperial modernization. Men like Mustafa Pasha, sent in late uh, 1841 to settle the affairs of Mount Lebanon following sectarian clashes that had earlier erupted in the village of Dar El Kamar, uh, epitomized the Ottoman predicament. His mission began by a reassertion of social order. He summoned both Druze and Maronite elites to Beirut and relieved Bashar Qasim, who had succeeded the famous Bashir Shehab in 1840 of his powers. He informed the notables that the return of the Shehab dynasty was out of the question. Beyond reasserting Ottoman authority in the name of the reforming sultan, Mustafa Pasha symbolically and physically broke with the old regime by f- finally abolishing the Shehab dynasty, which had ruled since 1697. Yet, this rupture was not complete, for although the Tanzimat was concerned with building a modern nation, there was very little in the dispatches that indicated how this was to be accomplished. Precisely because the Tanzimat lent itself to a variety of interpretations, including a European one that mandated interference, the Ottomans considered the reorganization of local administration imperative to stifling European involvement. The Tanzimat placed the Ottomans in a quandary, for while they repeatedly pledged to obey the Sultan's will to reform, they viewed the natives as essentially unreformable subjects. Ottoman officials were certain, however, that reform and state violence went hand-in-hand. Hand. Public order and security could be guaranteed only by bringing local notables to heel and by removing their stupid, silly, and fickle followers from the realm of politics. The longer Mustafa Pasha remained in Mount Lebanon, the more insistent he became on the urgent need of the central government to act decisively to restore order. Christian notables seemed on the verge of joining the 1842 Druze Rebellion against Omar Pasha's heavy-handed policies. The despises of Assad Pasha, governor of Saida, further reflected the weakness of the Ottoman local government, whose troops were unreliable and unpaid, which had to borrow coal from the English consulate, which in turn made it quite clear that it would supply no more, and which had a difficult time in suppressing a Druze revolt against Umar Pasha, an Ottoman officer of Croatian origin who had been appointed to directly rule Mount Lebanon in 1842. Like Mustafa Pasha, Assad stretched the age-old conflict between barbaric people, they being in essence too coarse and savage sects, who often need punishment to keep them in order. Ottoman concern reached a climax when Shaheen's calls for Christian social liberation spread to Druze-dominated regions of Mount Lebanon and helped spark sectarian clashes between the Druze and Maronite communities, which in turn led to the infamous War of 1860, in which thousands of Christians were massacred by the Druze in June. It was interesting to me, actually, you know, reading Mark Twain and also looking up how this was covered in the American press at the time, because it was curious to me that uh, they understood the Druze were Muslims. Muslims. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like these Although, crazy Muslims, yeah. but they're not. He does say in Jul- Yeah. No, they're not. They don't. They, But it's. I guess it's. Yeah, I mean, Druze sometimes, I don't know, like maybe there is definitely some like Takiyya uh, in the proper sense that maybe is uh, deployed by Druze uh, at various times in history. And also like uh, they can sometimes be kind of like secretive about their like religious identity, I feel. or They're protective. esoteric. So maybe They're like
0: officially esoteric. Like their religious practices are secret. They, yeah, I think that they like being Druze.
2: Apparently. No, I think that you uh, they actually kind of develop from like Ismailism. I think that yeah, they have yeah. like an Ismaili history, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but oh yeah, so in July to add to Ottoman embarrassment, a riot by Damascus Muslims killed several thousand Christians. So oh, uh, okay, okay. so are there was some... yeah the regions for the Damascus yeah. massacre. Yeah. As well as the Lebanese war were complex, but most historians agree that an economic recession among traditional artisanal sectors precipitated by European textile imports played a significant role in fueling Muslim resentment against wealthy Christians who dominated trade with Europe. So, uh, yeah. he, Yeah, yeah. So, uh,
0: European disruption happening.
2: Yeah. And it was much more than that in terms of, like, the constitution of, of Lebanon or the government of Lebanon, right? He says... What interests us here are not the details of these sectarian episodes, but how Ottoman reformers took advantage of the restoration of order in Mount Lebanon and Damascus to construct their vision of an Ottoman modernity in contrast to an alleged local pre-modernity. The foreign minister of the Ottoman Empire, Fuad Pasha, who himself was educated in reformed schools, was fluent in French and had served as an Ottoman ambassador to Russia, and was a statesman who embodied many of the ideals of the Tanzimat, went personally to Syria to ensure that modern Ottoman law and order was properly imposed. His immediate objective, however, was to stem European influence, for in the aftermath of the massacres, the French had sent an army to Syria to, quote-unquote, aid the Ottomans' re peace. From the outset of his mission, before he had actually completed any investigations, Fuad Pasha alleged that the violence in Mount Lebanon was a reflection of a, quote, age-old tribal struggle, whereas the outburst in Damascus was the work of unthinking and ignorant Muslims. In report after report, Fuad Pasha contrasted the punishment inflicted by his modern army, whose outfits and organization reflected the new face of the empire, with the supposed tribal savagery of local inhabitants. Tanyush Shaheen was condemned as a brigand, and the uh, Kisrawan revolt was suppressed. In Damascus, because of the scale of violence and because of the city's symbolic importance to an Ottoman reconception of their Islamic heritage, scores of quote-unquote ignorant, or jahil, I imagine is what the term like is, Muslims who allegedly took part in the riots were arrested. They were executed after hasty trials because they had violated the precepts of the sharia and the will of the sultan, both of which Fuad Pasha maintained upheld the equality of Muslims and non-Muslim subjects. He concluded that Ottoman culpability was limited to a neglect of duty at the local level, which resulted in a stain on the honor of a modernizing state. The point here is to understand the implications of Fuad Pasha's convictions rather than their veracity. The descriptions of the conflicts as age-old, in the case of Mount Lebanon, or the work of ignorant rioters, in the case of Damascus, conveniently located sectarianism in a pre-modern world dominated by fanaticism, ignorance, and tribalism. The Ottoman punishment, following supposedly impartial investigations and sentences in accordance with reformed and allegedly unambiguous penal codes carried out by a Tanzimat army in the presence of European representatives, was by contrast understood by Fuad Pasha to be modern. Modernity, in other words, was a contest between reforming Ottomans and Europeans, Fuad Pasha was out to prove that the Ottoman Empire was just and tolerant and therefore could be modern. The local setting, be it the city of Damascus or Mount Lebanon, provided the stage upon which two interrelated spectacles could be simultaneously enacted. The first was a modern one which pitted Fuad Pasha and his reforming cohorts against their European rivals. It was a struggle in which a reformed army and officials valiantly tried to snatch the initiative from, and thereby defeat, the hubris of European Orientalism, represented by the French army and express in the reports of the various European commissioners. This struggle over modernity constituted and defined the second spectacle in which the Ottoman modern crushed the supposed local pre-modern. That is to say, the spectacle of discipline and punishment that went on through 1861. For Fuad Pasha, the local inhabitants themselves were not modern. They did not make or move history as much as they were pawns or objects of a modern historical struggle that pitted, in Fuad Pasha's view, powerful yet scheming Europeans against beleaguered Ottoman reformers. Another implication was the nature of this modern stage and its impact on the traditional relationship between rulers and ruled in the Ottoman Empire. Although Fuad Pasha deployed the language of the old regime in his reports such as brigandage and the Sharia, he was acutely aware of the world stage on which local order had to be restored. Because the sublime state never accepts that the slightest harm or aggression should befall any of the classes of imperial subjects who take shelter under its protection, decreed Fuad, and because the events that transpired were contrary to the principle of civilization current in the world and beyond the pale in every manner, the sublime state, in accordance with its duty to ensure justice, has decided to punish those involved in the events. The ideology of progress allowed Fuad passion to deploy the language of brigandage in the Sharia, thereby tapping into classical Ottoman ruling discourses to equate the modern Ottoman subject with a tolerant, obedient, and quietist subject. Fuad Pasha reminded his soldiers that although they were in Syria to bring peace and security to this area and punish the sins of the Ottoman subjects because of their cruel acts, they were also there to show everybody what the worth and value of a soldier is and let all our compatriots know our Padishah's justice. On one hand, therefore, the soldiers acted on behalf of their theoretical compatriots in Damascus and Mount Lebanon, who lived, at least in the case of Mount Lebanon, in quote-unquote a savage tribal landscape. The imperial soldiers constituted the vanguard of Ottoman modernity, rationality, and nationalism. They were to lead by example, for in addition to being commanded to obey the person of the sultan, the soldiers and their Ottoman compatriots were extorted to be loyal to an abstract Ottoman nation. They were meant to embody a concept of national allegiance— which, like loyalty to the House of Osman of the old regime, flowed up the social order from periphery to center. Fuad Pasha envisioned a modern mo- an Ottoman modernity, which included a modern subjecthood composed of fellow citizens or uh, vatandaslar, uh, Shlar, who listened, followed, and obeyed rather than actively participated in the governance of the empire. Ottoman modernity introduced a linear progressive understanding of time, which created a temporal distance, a gap that separated modern Istanbul from tribal Mount Lebanon within a refined imperial framework. The closure of this gap became the ostensible goal of Ottoman reform. The inhabitants of Mount Lebanon were not simply savage, for that was a fairly standard Ottoman description of rural mountainous areas even before the Tanzimat, but savage in the context of a race of progress against civilized Europe. Fuad Pasha believed that Lebanese savagery and tribalism held back Ottoman reformers in their quest for the holy grail of modernity. In other words, the Ottoman Empire was waging a war of modernization on two fronts. It was desperately trying to close the metaphorical gap between itself and the European states, which continued to intervene in the affairs of the empire, while it also imagined an ever-widening gap that separated its center from its periphery. The closer the Ottoman reformers edged toward modern Europe, the more they drew back aghast at the horror of what they perceived to be their pre-modern subjects. Their own sense of modernity depended not only on their reforms and their emulation of Europe, but also on an increasingly clear representation of their subjects' backwardness and stagnation. Um, One more important point here you know he talks a little bit about you know their uh, antiquarian uh, adventures kind of like you know uh, they're sort of a civilizing mission or ottoman the ottoman man's burden uh uh-huh. that they kind of constructed <laughs> for themselves kind of casting themselves in a in a european mold but a key point i think that he mentions toward the end here i thought it was in this article maybe was, i was thinking of a, a different one where he uh, as i mentioned before that like the whole sort of scheme for the sort of druze and maronite uh, rule of Lebanon. Oh, I guess it's, it's here. Okay, here we go. So this is talking about uh, Hamdi Bey writing about the costumes of people in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Hamdi Bey made it abundantly clear that his ethnographic survey, just like his later archaeological expeditions, both proved and justified an Ottoman mission to civilize quaint but backwards and often savage peripheries. For example, Hamdi Bey prefaces discussion of what he understood to be native dress in Syria, stating... Great historical memories are in abundance in these rich countries, conquered in turn by the Phoenicians, the Hebrews, the Greeks, and the Romans, where the Qur'an and the Bible, two books of peace, fraternity, and tolerance, have long served as a pretext for crusaders coming from all over the Occident and for Arabs who founded Islam to tear each other apart. This continued up until the Ottoman conquest, contained by force these fanatical hatreds, which on occasion would reawaken. (laughs) Hamdi Bey not only sought to rewrite the history of the Ottoman conquest of the Arab providences in a profoundly 19th century discourse of tolerance, but he seized on the supposedly timeless costume to underscore other allegedly timeless characteristics of various groups in the Ottoman domains. He sought to adduce what he considered to be the essential characteristics of the native inhabitants of these provinces who were tamed, sorry of these provinces who were tamed disciplined and civilized that is to say forcibly removed from their endlessly repeated history of putatively endemic and age-old tribal violence by the Ottoman imperial center he described the muslim of lebanon by which he meant a sunni as imbued with Soft and tranquil manners and customs, unlike his turbulent neighbors, the Druze and Maronites. The Maronites, he declared, were remarkably intelligent and proud, and were industrious and rich. But just like their Druze neighbors, with whom they have never been able to live in harmony, the Maronites have proved difficult to subdue. Only since a few years ago has the joint efforts of the imperial Ottoman government, together with its faithful allies, succeeded in pacifying Mount Lebanon... Uh, You know, it should be noted that like Europeans basically came up with this like, you know, uh, Maronite Druze like dyad rule. Uh, It was like a proposal by Europeans accepted. But but, because obviously like, you know, the Maronites were patronized by the French and everything, you know. But uh, today, uh, the age old hatreds of the Druzes and Maronites seem to have been finally quelled. Obedient subjects. I now live as brothers under the legitimate authority of a Christian pasha sent by Istanbul to govern Mount Lebanon. And this is, uh, I think, something that is definitely going to become relevant with the Young Turk uh, revolution and uh, the sort of lead up to World War I yeah. and what happens in World War One as well. Although Hamdi Bey's main goal was to portray an Ottoman cultural heritage that he feared might be lost, his supposedly objective delineation of the popular costumes of the different groups of the Ottoman Empire... Supplemented with innumerable photographs, reinforced once more the notion that Ottoman modernization was not about equality between center and periphery, but was a project of imperial benevolence and, above all, power that sought to mitigate an alleged civilizational gap between the modernizers of the imperial center and their subjects in the far-flung peripheries of the empire, as the Himidian state continued to battle Western imperialism, and as the Balkan provinces continued to be whittled away in the 19th century. The civilizing Ottoman gaze over a number of different groups and classes, Anatolian, Kurd, Armenian, Serb, Damascene, Muslim, Arab, Maronite, Druze, Jew, Sheikh, Merchant, Peasant, and Urban Elite, was increasingly complicated, indeed redefined, as a desire of the modernizing quote-unquote Turkish nation to aid and civilize a backwards quote-unquote Arab nation, as well as the Armenians and Kurds. With the rise of the Committee of Union and Progress, the CUP, came an increasingly explicit racial articulation of modernization that pitted the Turkish race as the most natural and able leaders of the modern empire. Race thinking in the late Ottoman Empire was not, of course, the preserve of the imperial center. However, it is important to note that as Ottoman modernization diminished quote-unquote traditional religious differences that had legitimated Ottoman rule in its classical age, It also introduced a discourse of rational and supposedly scientific race thinking to justify the domination of the largely Turkish-speaking Ottoman center over the Arabic-speaking peripheries of the empire in its modern age. It is not surprising then that the memoirs of Haledi Adib, a woman who was at the forefront of an Ottoman-Turkish civilizing mission to educate the women of the Arab provinces during the First World War, reveal a very clear notion of the responsibilities incumbent upon the advanced Turkish nation. Adib claimed that the Ottoman Turks Created an Ottoman citizenship. Such an assertion staked out very precisely in previously unthinkable racial terms the notion that Turks, as opposed to Arabs, Kurds, or Armenians, and as opposed to the different classes of Turkish speaking inhabitants that Hamdi Bey recognized in his Costumes Populars, created in a modern concept of citizenship to which the other subordinate racial and ethnic groups of the empire would have to be gradually and benevolently, in- benevolently introduced. Turkey, she wrote, must help the Arabs develop a national spirit and personality, teach them to love their own national culture more than any foreign one, by which she meant French. In Adib's view, the Turk was a natural leader, whereas the Arab naturally corrupt. Echoing Hamdi Bey's view of the indigenous population of the Arab provinces and Fuad Pasha's before him, Adib insisted that the Arab was mired in local passions. When she visited Jerusalem, she noted that there was a hot and unwholesome atmosphere mixed with religion passion verging on hysteria. The Turk alone had a calm and partial and quiet look. He stood calmly watching, stopping bloody quarrels and preventing bloody riots in the holy places. (laughs) Such representations underscored the degree to which Ottoman modernization paradoxically elaborated a language of racial discrimination of a Turkish mission to lead and save the other groups of the empire at the same time as it constructed a discourse of integrative Ottoman nationalism. Ottoman modernization resisted European imperialism but accepted with a significant twist, its underlying cultural logic. Just as modern imperialism can be thought of as the European desire to reshape and discipline non-European places and peoples without history, quote unquote, mm. so too can Ottoman modernization be thought of as an Ottoman desire to try and reshape and discipline the not yet Ottoman places and peoples.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, and that's that the dark of, side of catching up with Europe is adopting yeah. those underlying principles of this racial hierarchy thing. Oh, that. That could be useful i guess
2: well Unless yeah once a... you that's like kind of yeah exactly that's the sort of uh other it's a flip side of the idea of well you know all these european powers are insisting that like you know the religious minorities don't have equality but like if you go and look at these european empires like they might have you know this sort of westphalian framework where there isn't like you know a uh, formal religious discrimination or there's like a secularity right Mm-hmm. But they certainly have like a hierarchy that makes their imperial system possible. Yeah, right. It wouldn't like be possible Indians aren't equal with people British people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: like economically, it's sort of like you need that as a legal justification in order to make the whole enterprise, uh, quote unquote, profitable or, you know, hyper expropriative, I guess you could say. Um, yes to extract the 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 requisite amount of wealth and then so they have all these domains of like different ethnic groups which back when there was more of a religious kind of like justification for ottoman rule like it was more religiously organized right i mean that's why you had like muhammad ali was albanian right yeah and then this next pasha was i i presume a croatian was he a croatian catholic who was like Working for the Ottomans,
2: I don't know who the Pasha of Lebanon that they were referring to uh, he said was. He was
0: Croatian, and that oh, like yeah. he was selected for because he was Christian to like deal with the Maronites. Um, oh yeah, I say uh, yeah, Ottoman officer but, of Croatian origin. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah, but then you know when they're trying to catch up to Europe and they're looking at Europe's model, even in the late 1800s, like it's easy to forget how much like additional colonial. You know, capture was going on like like the the Berlin conference was what, like 1888, you know, yeah. like Germany started to get into the colonial game properly, like relatively late. And were they were trying to catch up to like England and France. And then the Ottomans were looking at their own domain, which is like still pretty fairly vast. But yeah you know now it perhaps was more convenient to sort of yeah center the turkish ethnic identity over the subjects in the periphery and say well like you need like we need to do like an ottoman's man ottoman man's burden to kind yeah. of uh, i guess try to kind of try to like sigh up everybody that like we are actually like the modernizers like we're the calm rational you know advanced civilization that can keep all the kids from fighting with each other and uh, have this very paternalistic like oversight over everything which i guess ultimately yeah. didn't really pan out and save them as an empire but
2: yeah this is like part of like what and it actually like definitely i think was a factor in Things like the Armenian genocide and also like other atrocities that happened like amidst like World War One and and that that later or, you know, early period of 20th century, but later period from what we're talking about now. That's kind of like the flip side. Yeah, as I was saying of this whole thing of like uh, equality, which is like, you know, a good principle. And was, like, inspiring to a lot of people, like, who live in the Ottoman Empire, right, which I think is worth talking about, touching on what we were kind of talking about when we of recording the potential of, like, a, like, Jewish identity, like, within the Ottoman Empire that had, like, a lot of traction at that time in opposition to to Zionism, like, in Palestine. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah, that ended up also giving rise to this racial thinking as well and having a lot of, like, unconsidered potentialities right? Like it's obviously like the sort of inclusion of, you know, non-Muslims or everybody, you know, the idea of citizenship, right? Changing this from being subjects to like, you know, having citizenship in the quote-unquote modern mold, right? Like that seems like, you know, uh, a reasonable principle, right? You know, egalitarian. But the way that it practically panned out, it didn't, like, ensure uh, equality, right? A lot of people felt, even minorities who did have, like, Western support or substantial Western support in the uh, the Ottoman Empire, like, felt that they, you know, it wasn't fully realized in the way that they hoped. You know, some of them with good reason, especially later on. The Armenians, for sure. Yeah, the Armenians, definitely uh... for sure. Yeah, and, but also, like, the, the, you know, as we talked about last time, like, the uh, majority in places like Palestine, the Arab majority, or often, like, you know, as kind of was hinted at in that article, like, they were very much, like, thrown under the bus because they were, like, the ones holding back the the Turks, right? And no one. And everyone just wanted them to get pushed aside, basically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The first of many unfortunate positions, uh, native inhabitants of Palestine would be sort of put in, like, between a geopolitical rock and a hard place and, like, viewed by, by other powerful people in the region as, like, an obstacle of some kind, you know? And... I think that continues to this day, unfortunately. But yeah, well, it might be good to talk about the years leading up to the Young Turk Revolution. But you know, before before we leave Mark Twain completely.
2: Oh yeah, okay. the
0: The end of this uh, essay uh-huh. uh, is like an absolute banger, and I mean, it sort of has a this. This is a little more of a a vibes based tangent, but I think it's very interesting mm-hmm. talking uh-huh. about. You know the crafting of like, you know, American consciousness towards the region, and also the uh, perfidious uh, weaponization of irony. Um, okay. As uh, yeah. So, and this is this is an event I guess that became relatively famous, where on this trip to the Holy Land, you know, that he describes in his book, he visits the uh, purported grave of Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, And so they write that Twain deepens this secular designation when he comes to the tomb of Adam to offer the comic epiphany of his tour to the shrine. Adam's grave, located conveniently alongside the tomb of the second Adam in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, would present itself as the height of inauthentic, quote, pious frauds to the skeptical Protestant, making the site perfect for discursive transformation. The tomb of Adam, Twain exclaims, and this excerpt needs to be performed with the exaggerated bombastic style of 19th century speechifying, so I'll try. (laughs) How touching it was, here in a land of strangers, far away from home and friends and all who cared for me, thus to discover the grave of a blood relation, true a distant one, but still a relation, the unerring instinct of nature thrilled its recognition— the fountain of my filial affection was stirred to its profoundest depths and I gave way to tumultuous emotion. <laughs> the mock lament careens from one parodic or burlesque performance to another. Self-pity, sentimentality, bromide, quote, funerary flapdoodle, hitting upon a series of major chords of, or- of oratorical bombast of the time, its effect readily going beyond mere Protestant scoffing at Catholic and Orthodox impostures. One critic a few years later hailed the passage as the height of, quote, serio-comic weeping and wailing, and as an example of the humorous sublime. And the eulogy over Adam's grave became one of the most celebrated passages in the book. Laughter could mock American sentimentality, the type of sentimentality that pervaded Holy Land books, including William C. Prime's Tent Life in the Holy Land, which Twain specifically parodied. But, as the critic Louis Budd rightly points out, The passage's meaning, quote, lay in the daring burlesque of reverence itself, the satire of sanctity itself. First dirtbag. The passage was so Hmm. popular that years later, in 1902, a St. Louis newspaper could jokingly query who was Mark Twain and answer the man who visited Adam's tomb, the man who wept over the remains of his first parent that beautiful act of filial devotion is known in every part of the globe read by every traveler translated into every language even the dusky savages of the most barbaric corners of the earth have heard of mark twain shedding tears at the tomb of adam <laughs> by this time the by this time the ancient monument is fairly mildewed with the grief of mark twain's imitators indeed president grant "'Upon visiting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, "'participated in what had become "'a peculiarly American tourist practice. "'Grant was, at least in part, "'visiting the Tomb of Adam "'because it was the place where Mark Twain wept. "'Twain enforced the historicizing, (laughs) secularist process, "'inscribing himself upon the shrine, "'and therefore transforming the sacred site "'into a modern tourist attraction.'" Through comic appropriation, values and identities, once exploded, can become cleared fields ready to be, quote, settled or occupied by new meanings. Once the numinous quality of religious sites, like the numinous quality of da Vinci's Last Supper, is punctured, the application of invented use values and exchange values begins to alter the uniquely holy into the profanely exchangeable. Religious values inherent in a place or a building— suspiciously akin to a too-Catholic sensibility of incarnation, are now able to be detached or moved or replicated or regarded as separate from the embodiment of its meaning. While this dynamic, the comic disruption of all authority, becomes an important part of Twain's later writing, perhaps most evinced in Huck Finn's declaration, all right, I'll go to hell. (laughs) See, like, I'm a sicko. (laughs) Rather than turn in the escaped slave Jim... Well, okay, that's based, but you know, yeah, Twain. Well, see, you're not going to go to hell if you die for not turning in an escaped slave. See, that means you're good. You're going to go to heaven. You know what I mean? So, yeah, Huck Finn is the first like dirtbag punk, like I'm bad, like yeah. kind of person. Um, anyways, so Twain has little occasion to repeat it in the holy land of the Middle East in other works. However. I actually didn't know about this book. *Tom Sawyer Abroad*, published in 1894, gave Twain one more opportunity to supplant religious with bourgeois secular values regarding the Holy Land. This potboiler, although not one of Twain's more memorable works, carries Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, and Jim in a balloon ride across Africa to Egypt oh
1: my <laughs> before God. their arrival. I didn't know however, about this I know, right? Like yeah. I, this has never All made right. a
0: movie. Uh, before their arrival, however, Tom attempts to recruit Huck and Jim to, to join a crusade in a characteristic uh, logomachy? Logomachy?
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Logomachy? Yeah, like war or, of, words. Or, or war of word, words. War of words. Okay. Wow. Yeah. A sort of brilliantly absurd Socratic dialogue. Quote, a crusade is a war to recover the Holy Land from the paynim, uh, Tom asserts, against the Socratic questions of Huck and Jim. Why, the Holy Land, there ain't but one. Although we know, considering the dual Holy Land sensibility, how ironic that statement is. Eventually, Tom explodes in frustration to counter Huck and Jim's assertions that it would be theft to steal someone's land. Quote, (laughs) they own the land, just the mere land, and that's all they do own. But it was our folks, our Jews and Christians, that made it holy, and so they haven't any business to be there defiling it.
2: It's (laughs) a shame,
0: and we ought not to stand it a minute. We ought to march against them and take it away from them. Tom ultimately quits arguing with people who, quote, try to reason out a thing that's pure theology by the laws that protect real estate. Oof. Okay. I mean, that's... that's All right. Not Uh, wrong there. Okay.
2: uh,
0: Uh, So what Tom presents is the rationale for the, quote, peaceful crusade. The particular movement of Europeans, and to a lesser degree Americans, whether or not they were sanctioned by their respective governments, to participate in the Eastern question through fervid Christian intervention and colonization in Palestine. Published at the dawn of Herzlian Zionism, the dialogue could also be seen as critiquing that latest form of, quote, recovering the land for, quote, our Jews and Christians, Here, the laws that protect real estate are those of bourgeois relations, the same, quote, laws that have, through irreverence, placed the tomb of Adam in the realm of the tourist site. One of Twain's favorite burlesque techniques was to take a high-minded spiritual value, such as pure theology, and render it in terms of mundane commercial language. But as Tom asserts, and Twain satirizes, religious and national narratives can counter even property rights, just so long as a, quote, higher right, notably the needs of empire, is asserted. Twain's satire is directed more broadly than only the appropriation of Palestine. Rather, it targets all imperialist rationales, such as those that would soon lead the U.S. to expropriate the Philippines after its war with Spain. In The Innocence Abroad, Twain uses comic subversion to strip religion of its aura in favor of bourgeois tourist values. Decades later, in Tom Sawyer Broad, he employs common sense school bourgeois property rights to strip away the aura of the natural from the religious rationales of imperial ideology. The secular American encounter with the Holy Land entails other dynamics, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I, I'm kind of I'm reading this, but like I don't know if I agree with the conclusion. Um mm-hmm. it entails other yeah. dynamics and the, and as the twentieth century progressed... That would also include humanist, secular support for colonization. But in Mark Twain, we see one strand of American cultural tradition, the transformative power of irreverence. The transformative power, yeah. Yeah. But I was saying also, like, we see one strand of American cultural dominance, uh, the transformative power of irreverence or something. Because, I mean, they kind of say, they kind of assert in this essay that the bit that he did, like pretend crying over the tomb of Adam, yeah. became like this sensation, and it like dif- it was like a ritual, kind of a desecration of this Catholic like holy monument, and reduced it mm-hmm. to like the equivalent of place where you like go to like take TikToks, like it. Which I guess you know you could read as like a critique or whatever. But mm-hmm. it's weird that like everybody was like. I guess it's one of those things where like you do a bit, and it's got some like satirical serious satirical thing behind it and then everyone just kind of like accepts it as like that's funny yeah and so everyone just wants to go to the tomb of adam because they're like haha i don't know um or it's the first time that americans were like let's go to a like a sacred religious site and like laugh, to like to laugh at it, to be like, lol, yeah. like it's it's interesting. It's a, but yeah, then he's like that's, like, that's a great yeah. thing. And I'm, I'm like, well,
2: let's call co- yeah, it's kind of like, let's do like a crusade, like ironically. Yeah, well, like, you know, ironic know, like wouldn't it be a great bit if we like colonize <laughs> Palestine? Like, we don't actually believe bit. in that stuff, but it's like, yeah that's the, that,
0: that yeah that's what i'm seeing reading this mark twain like i get I'll, I'll i'll give him i guess like credit for like yeah i don't know his intent to like satirize according to this author uh that was their intent but you know at the same time like were they also subconsciously sort of doing the work doing the soft power work of yeah like as this person kind of lays out like you know, by making something like "lol," like eh, like these crazy people think that you know Jesus died in like a shrine, <laughs> like I don't know, just like this place sucks. You know Yeah. It, then you're kind of laying the groundwork, whether you intend to or not, for uh, deeper penetration. I mean, it's sort of it's evidenced like, by the fact that like yeah, the president of the United States went there and was like "lol," like eh, I'm it, yeah, I'm at, I'm at, I'm at the tomb yeah, with Adam. <laughs> like take that catholics like i don't know it's like very mm,
2: yeah exactly it's like
0: american vibe
2: yeah definitely it's kind of like yeah i get it it's kind of like winking a little bit but or it's doing a bit but it certainly isn't like i don't think that he's like joking about like any of the things that he says about arabs or like the people who live there i don't think that that's a joke i don't think he's pretending to be racist
0: see that's the thing where it's like yeah like it sounds like he's actually yeah i know
2: that you know he wrote like that anti-slavery book huck fan and everything and but yeah uh, i think that that is actually racist (laughs) like i think that he's actually he's definitely
0: well i mean he's kind of emblematic of like the late like 19th century kind of like american yankee kind of guy you know always says he's from california but you know he's from hartford connecticut so samuel clemens i don't know but like that kind of thing of like very being very kind of proud of yourself for like being in support of abolition and like Mm -hmm. ending slavery but then when they turn out like after the war like he says when everybody all the bourgeois people go traveling like they have the attitude towards that they have it seems towards most of the like non-white cultures they encounter. Is very similar to that of like the attitude towards the Native Americans, which at that point, that's the other like weird, you know, the duality of like the, you know, the the era of ending slavery is then they immediately moved on to like waging decades of low intensity warfare on like the American plains and the American West and basically ethnically cleansed all of it you know and like stole all the land so like that was also and then so i can see like i mean it's like he said he compared like i know it was a bit but like he compared the arabs to like indians and like they just sit there like looking at you you know and it's like yeah making you nervous i don't like, think that that like,
2: was a bit i don't think that that was a bit like i think that yeah like i don't think that the comparison itself was a bit i think that there's like a little bit yeah like there's a little bit of uh irony like in the attitude or like a joke in the attitude and maybe like there's a, even a little bit of self-parody or like kind of like you know hanging a lampshade on it as they say but yeah, yeah i yeah it's kind of just like oh yeah if i'm ironically racist it's not racist like i don't actually mean it which I don't think it's true. I think that he did mean a lot, like most of that stuff. I think that he did actually mean that. Like I think and that that's part that, of like the thing of like, oh, these great, all these travel books make a big deal out of this like glorious holy land, and it's a fucking shithole full of like freaks. And, I dropped
0: yeah, LSD and the yeah. Sea of Galilee, and it sucked. Like,
1: yeah, this <laughs> is something.
2: Yeah, like exactly. That. Yeah.
0: Like Yeah, no, exactly. It's like, yeah, but that is, I mean, I guess that is a uh, a powerful American discursive uh, technique that yeah and i mean i think you do kind of see
2: that attitude like today where it's like that kind of like above it all thing of like oh these like religious freaks like fighting over like this holy land you know like whatever like but i believe in like real politique and i don't give a fuck and like i only care about like what the superior race is or like whatever you know like it's just (laughs) it's interesting yeah like he mocks like religion and that comes through very clearly that like he doesn't take like at least the the modes of religiosity that he encounters like in uh the ottoman empire or like the arab world very seriously
0: but he's pretty hostile to all of them yeah even though he
2: he still does come off as being christian but he i don't think that yeah but the race stuff it's kind of like a similar thing to what we were just talking about where it's like okay yeah like you're mocking that but what comes through as like your actual views are that he's almost like making fun of the religious mystique that's around these you know these people and saying like oh you know you think of these people as being like these religious characters and like you know these figures you have this reverence for these these people because of like the Old Testament and stuff like that but they just suck <laughs> like I you know they're pieces of shit like they don't have any special quality because they're connected to these places like yeah so it's just kind of like ultimately demeaning and ultimately like dehumanizing it's not he's doing the thing
0: where i feel like maybe he was having a go at a lot of like self-righteous he definitely was right because he was parodying these other christian like travel books he was like making fun of like the sort of evangelical like sentimental american chuds like the the normies you know back home and desecrating the holy land while also being casually racist about all the people who live there yeah like he's but do- but he's, he's doing that like I'm an atheist park. like I'm he's an atheist a- so I'm going to shit on like every religion but it's like also kind of like it, it yeah, but actually, I'm a Protestant, and I'm so yeah. I'm gonna
2: shit on every other religion. I have the same religion as these evangelicals, but I just think that they're snooty about it. Yeah, <laughs> or like yeah, they're up exactly. their own a- They're too up their own asses about it. And also, like it's kind of yeah, it's a little bit of the South Park thing of like everyone gets it, you know, like there's no like moral like dimension to it at all. But there's um, still like
0: there's like an old line Protestant from the bias great, like, in there. That, yeah, that, oh, that for they got sure. off a little easier than everybody because they're like from the author's POV, like the they are what's kind of normal, like that's yeah. who, that's the protagonist default, and everyone else is fucking weird, man, like. Two stupid shrines. Like we should bomb yeah. this place. Like, uh, but it also, you know what? It also stands out to me. Like, it syncs up so well with like both America's like interactions with this region, but also just like, like you said, like America's still like kind of developing status in the 19th century of like really like politically in a lot of ways like like a nation of like teenagers you know yeah. they're just like what like <laughs> palestine this sucks like yeah you know just like not really appreciating like a, a lot like kind of very energetic but like provincial and like kind of going out into the world for the first time but kind of being sheltered but also being very confident that like they have bright ideas and are like you know want and and just like changing and like you know anything that's old sucks. Like yeah, you know exactly for the most part. And because back then, I mean, there still were like you know monarchies and kingdoms there were a lot, and empires. Yeah. And like America did like with very few exceptions, like kind of most like, of
2: the like empire. Like most of the world was like empires of mo- like most of the, like the nations were monarchies. You know, like most of them were empires at that time. Like yeah, so this you is know.
0: truly the the age where, you know, a, a sort of a, a bourgeois liberal minded person could really feel like they were on the revolutionary edge of like just whatever. Yeah, and I um, think Mark Twain still,
2: leaned into that like identity a lot. Where, like, I'm an American Yankee in King Arthur's court, you know, like just me, <laughs> like a little American Yankee, like you know, thumb in my nose at all this pomposity, like, you know, European pomposity. But also like, like I can't East I can't wait until like France and Britain like destroy the Ottoman Empire. Uh, or you know Well
0: that's also like like geopolitics is like uh, like a baseball game or something yeah exactly sort of like this distant weird you know phenomenon that they don't have a lot of like direct experience with or so it's just like football teams or something like going at it and yeah because they're you're like there's like huge oceans like separating you from all these places so like they could blow themselves up and like whatever i'll just go back to yeah california like
2: Right. I mean, as I've said before, like I, I mean, I guess I would. I'm not 100 percent surprised, but like you know, I'm glad that like the dirt bag like contingent does seem to have like a little. I mean, it's funny like Matt Taibbi is not really talking about this and still like kind of going on about like the censorship of like the political right. Interesting, but interesting. like, I think that's like still like what he's like harping on about like the Twitter files and shit like during this time. But you know, a lot of the, like the sort of dirt bag like podcast contingent like does have like a, a conscience about. Like the issue of Palestine, although you do see like some, you know, there definitely is the sentiment out there in its sort of unreconstructed form. You know, we mentioned before expressed by some, you know, of like who cares, like the Jews like, just can kill them, like they don't matter, they're just savages. This is not Bronze Age, you know, yeah, and yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, that contingent is uh, they've been uh fighting, but I feel like that's kind of
2: baked into the attitude in a way too. Like they like allowed that possibility because that is a general attitude towards politics that they often have um i mean that, they yeah you are, want to talk about like,
0: weaponized like the the kind of like toxic weaponization of like an ironic posture yeah. to just be like nothing matters like i would have been best friends with elaine maxwell like yeah. you know just say like disgusting shit and just like nothing yeah, like, matters so then you know it's like well, lol like
2: killing arabs lol like shitty arabic name lol etc lol i love yeah murder. like um, you know
0: just like like So, yeah, but I, I, I,
2: you know, I get it's a bit, but you like we know how it it definitely has an effect, like it definitely like and the thing is that it's because of like the impressionability, unfortunately, of people (laughs) like where they like really like for whatever reason, have talk about like their religious reverence, you know, like they have like a certain religious reverence towards or a sort of parasocial devotion to certain personalities. And when they model a certain stance towards thing, it does have an impact, which is why I do appreciate those who have like shown a conscience on the issue of Palestine in particular. But I think that in general, like it's a bad thing, like that sort of attitude. And like the, you know, and I think it can when there's like an incredible sincerity about Certain things like Bernie, who has really shown himself to be a piece of shit where it matters, you know, yes, when there's like yeah. all of our energy directed towards, like you know, our incredible, intense investment in like the glory of Bernie, and this is our one chance to step through the door of history and achieve glory. There that hasn't also is bad.
0: Reckoning with how much of a like a probably a dead end.
2: Yeah, it always and- was. Or. Or that, you know, that kind of, like, <laughs> like you know, uh, thing of, like, uh, you know, the Mizrahi, like, tend to vote for Likud, actually, uh, so uh, this decolonization shit won't get you very far. Like, all right, like, it's kind of, like, that type of thing of, like, sn- sneering, scoffing, like, bullshit, where it's, like, I don't know. I do, yeah. I, you definitely think that it's a uh, political attitude that uh, is uh, toxic. I I appreciate like as far as like it goes in terms of having a conscience on on the Palestine issue, but you can see you're, where you're it, it, it falls sussed, short. It falls short as irony, well. <laughs> I'm definitely sussed out by irony, and I definitely think that irony like around this topic, especially like the am- of the ambiguous sort, where it's like not clear what the joke is. Like, yeah, lol, I love yeah. Kissinger. Like, is that a joke? no no i mean and that's that, not funny that's in and of not itself not that, like that's just like the, saying something that like you allegedly don't believe like it's like yeah like i'm just gonna make a straight up like for instance i'm gonna just make, say something racist but like lol i don't believe it that's not really funny
0: it's a bit like israel which i realized the other day is maybe like the biggest small bean country in like <laughs> modern history mm-hmm. but uh people like that like to do uh well they like to accuse people of Doing the small bean But they're They're kind of Small beans themselves Of like I'm gonna say something Israel
2: is very much A small bean country Like I'm
0: gonna do Something very inflammatory Like murder Thousands of children In airstrikes uh, And then When people get mad About it Be like what Like I'm just a little I'm just a little Small bean Like you know Like you know watery eye emojis like just what like i don't know why people are so mean like you know this is i've never seen this amount of hate for like me before you know and it's like you're yeah or that also crimes like
2: that kind of like very loose relationship with like the truth and like having kind of like a for the lulls orientation toward like I think that's definitely true like in the general like uh sentiment like on or the general sort of a pro-israel faction online they have kind of like an oh, lol well, like all right buddy like sense like or like kind of an, an indignance when they're called out for like saying obvious lies where it's like, they don't like say it was a bit because it actually was like an attempt at propaganda. But there's definitely, I think, a there's a certain sympathy uh, in the sort of vibes to me of like how they react when like caught lying and how people react when like called out on saying something that's like full of shit or like something evil. Uh, and then just saying it's a bit you know it's like the same type of thing of like oh yeah like so we like you know took these dead bodies and like said they were palestinian uh, said they were Israelis, but actually they're like a bunch of palestinians that we killed like oh, lol well, who cares like oh, yeah well, I think it's just like
0: a bit. i'm lol i'm doing Hasbro. like you know yeah like, or like yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. I I,
2: like I I, I put on like a nun's habit and like pretended to be like a hijabi nurse, like in an Israeli hospital, like begging to be freed from or sorry, in a Palestinian hospital, like begging to be freed from Hamas. Like that's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Like, but lol, like I was joking. (laughs) I definitely see that a little bit of that. And I've seen people increasingly be like, you know, people say like, oh, you're committing genocide. Just say like, who cares? That's a
0: great development. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen as much maybe I've just been like staying away from uh X a little bit more but yeah I don't think irony is like getting them through this uh this one like you can only be so ironic about it. and also like their defense is also kind of you know they're small beans so like defense The Jews is about,
2: are tired Yeah tired yeah like, tired the parking sign Yeah exactly yeah they're tired yeah Yeah, exactly like oh like yeah sorry i'm tired so like i made up a bunch of lies like i committed a genocide like but on the other hand like i'm tired like um like you people have worms in your brains like you're complaining about me committing a genocide yeah Um, i mean i'm seeing
0: a lot of that like attacking kind of like the college age like protesters and like kind of going after them on just kind of like yeah exactly like blue haired antifa people like yeah dumb kids like they don't know like watching um i've been checking in on a bill mars show and oh like that has become like I, just I, a that's what i can't deal with i would rather pro idf like hour. that is yeah. an idf safe space that show now and uh, but i feel like it, it transmits like i guess what certain people in hollywood uh are feeling right now and it's like it does feel kind of like this this alternate universe where like they feel attacked they feel like threatened you know i don't know by the fact they're like protests in america it's like oh my god you know but then they're also fully in support of like what's happening like they're not going to listen all they're going to do is like attack the reputations of anybody and and definitely call for like all those people that were like anti-cancel culture for the last like four years are very pro cancel culture now like oh, it's different for sure, this yeah. time um, i mean
2: yeah so. i think that some people definitely feel that way like i think that and i i almost would put bill maher in this latter category because there definitely are some who like do have that small bean mentality where like it is in some way sincere and they do feel like that they're under attack or whatever and like this is like retaliatory but then i think there are some who like actually just feel like yeah like their inconv- their existence is inconvenient for us so like we're gonna genocide them and like you know i'll say whatever just to like get that accomplished or to just like
0: you're you right know, there, there's i have like i'm a... righteous
2: you know like this is this is yeah. right for me to do like yes it's a genocide but it's also okay and like if you take issue with it i'm just gonna like say like whatever i'm just gonna flip you off like I think that that's also an attitude. And I feel like Bill Maher actually falls into that category. Like, I when think so. He that, said, that's a
0: big one. The kind of like a strength fetish of like, yeah, fucking back down, like sick of this bullshit. Like, right. When he know, said that
2: no colonization had happened, but also like if only more of the world had been colonized because it's the like everything good comes from the West or whatever. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Just
0: casually saying that. See, that's the thing you start going on and then you have to back it up with even more insane statements and then it's really kind of mask off.